You're listening to the Blue Box Pod. Go and put it down. You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Simon. That was the worst intro I've ever done, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, tonight... Oh, I should mention before we start, because it started on last week's podcast, but I wasn't with you guys. We had a new theme starting last week, a new arrangement, which is another one from Wesley Smith. Oh, cool. I think 2014 is going to be the year of Wesley Smith, because he sent me four, and, I'm, and there's one in particular I've been saving, but they're all good, so they'll all get used. Yeah. Back on the bike. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, he would have done all the way through, but I've quite... Oh, Annette drew that on there. Yeah, yeah, can I just explain? There is a picture of a phallus on JR's notes. <laughs> well, not that I actually have notes. This is the email, Simon. <laughs> Shall I get right in with the emails, then? You may as well. For the attention of Sharak Jizz, care of the blue boxes. No. Regards, Betsy Chevron. And if you remember that, that was in reference to Sharak Jizz offering to, uh, well, ask, inviting her to get to know him a little better, basically. <laughs> That's possibly the best email we've ever had. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure, I'm quite certain, that's what most of our listeners are thinking every week when we read out the uh, Sharak Jizz emails, isn't it? No. No. Well, we know the last about three minutes, so just forward the podcast onto that. Okay, well, you can take this as your cue to fast forward by three minutes then. <laughs> Dear Blue Boxers, I have just listened to your latest podcast. It was quite good. Simon had broken his hand and JR asked what he did when he had to have a poo. I have had this problem quite a lot and I would suggest that Simon contacts Betty Chevrolet as she is very good with broken hands. See, she suggested Play-Doh to me but I didn't have any so I used the closest thing that I could find which also answers JR's question. It didn't help and now my hand smells funny. This week you were talking about The Awakening by Eric Pingu who also invented the curvy crisp... <laughs> Eric Pingu. <laughs> oh, that's why you chose to laugh at. From this point on. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, man. It was dictated oh, by Eric Pingu, who also invented the curvy crisp in a tube. It was dictated by Michael Owen and Morris Minor, and you didn't like it very much, although JR said you had to give it some loving. I have suggested this several times myself, but it hasn't worked yet. The story starred Ploppy James, who was in The Liverbirds, which was a comedy about two girls who ate raw meat. I liked it a lot. Lee kept saying shite, which was funny. JR talked about when Tegan met her granddad, Reg Varney, and then they went off and did something else. I don't remember that bit, and I'm sure I would have. You talked about 12-year-old actors doing things with their hands. JR said if they had had their hand up, they didn't know what to do with it and just left it there too long. I like to leave it up as long as I can when I have my hand up. 
He said that their hand stays there while stuff goes through their head, which I agree with as this happens to me. (laughs) I don't know quite how I managed to read all that. Almost certain I got it right. The monster was called the phallus, and she was also in dysentery and the clobbies. Simon (laughs) wanted to tickle the phallus's bollocks. I didn't notice that she had any. Maybe Lee took them so he could slap them. Lee kept saying moobs, which I laughed at. I like that word. It reminds me of that song, Moobs Like Jabber. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right, that was good. That was by Mamoob5, wasn't it? JR talked about showing the phallus' sex tape, but I don't think she made one. I have looked for it a lot. JR was talking about a thing called show and not tell, which is like a game I have tried to play, although that was more like not show and not tell either. Simon said it was full of holes, but that is not a bad thing, as I have a few things which have holes and they make me happy. You didn't talk about the bit where the man tells Tegan to get changed in front of him. That is my... (laughs) That is my favourite bit. Then JR kept shouting, give me head, but I have tried this many times and that doesn't work either. After the awakening, you talked about films again, including one called Girls and Boys, which was by Pisky Lot, and apparently Status Quo were in it too. <laughs> JR said he didn't like films which always go down, and that they should give a happy ending. In my experience, films which go down do tend to give a happy ending, at least for me, although my hand does get tired. Are you okay there? What's the rating of our podcast? <laughs> Is it still on 12? <clears throat> it's... No, there's... Oh, it's PG. Right, so there's only two ratings on podcasts, explicit this, this, and not explicit. This is a far cry from the good old days where you two arguing with each other. Yeah, and yeah. Really and then it was a certificate 18. It was. Well, this is the thing. This is not explicit. It's it, very cleverly done. It's <laughs> very <laughs> ambiguous, but it's not explicit. <laughs> next week... No sense of irony whatsoever. Next week, after the one about the awakening. Next week, you are talking about horrible films, so I hope you talk about Piranha 3DD, which is my favourite. <laughs> After the podcast ended, there was another podcast which went on almost as long, which finished with Lee talking in a very funny voice, which I found a bit scary. Please ask him not to do it again. I am on Bookface now and have some friends. No girls yet, though. Story of my life. Your friend, Sharak Jizz. <clears throat> and we also have his email about the uh, Horrible Films podcast too, which we'll save for the end of this yeah. podcast. Because now we come to the subject of tonight's podcast, which will be... Season 11. Which, as per usual, we ask for our listeners to vote in their order of preference, and every single person who voted, voted in the same order of preference... So everybody who's listening should probably be able to guess the order we're doing the stories in. Hmm. Well, that's not quite true, but it was almost true. Yeah, and you kind of said it was inevitable, really. When you look at the list, it's just how it probably would have fallen anyway. Yeah, there weren't there weren't many surprises. A few people switched stories three and four, and a few people switched stories one and two. Hmm. But almost everybody had the first two, and then the third and fourth. And every single person who voted, I think, had the last story in last place Mm. pretty much so well uh, we've got lots of comments let's have the comments a few people sent in general comments about season 11 david kitchen says 
perhaps one of the most underrated seasons. Four of the five stories were ones that I loved on one level as a boy, but love on a different level as an adult. Dinosaurs was a special favourite then, and still is now. And Spiders is my favourite Doctor Who finale. A brilliant wrapping up of the era's themes and a tear-jerking ending. And you actually, an for that. You know, you, no, David really Kitchen sh- was on the last but one, or the last, yeah, by the time this goes out, the last but one episode of 42 to Doomsday. And I've got to tell you, I haven't listened to him for an hour and a half now. I have honed my accent so that it is absolutely authentic. Genuinely, you've, I felt like he was in the room. <laughs> Don't say that Simon. when Sharak Jizz is listening. Genuinely, I felt <laughs> like he was you, in the room. Have you actually watched any films from Australia other than Crocodile Dundee? Yeah. Uh, get away! Or the fast show. I've never seen Crocodile Dundee. Have you never happens? seen it? No. He sounds just like the, the Aborigine who, who goes, Oh, I hate the bush. <laughs> Here yeah. we go again. <clears throat> I've seen Gallipoli. In fact, I've seen all of Peter Weir's films, including The Cars That at Paris, which is probably the one that fewest people have seen. Mm. So. I know a little bit about Australian accents. I'm just not very good at replicating it for the microphone. Do you know what? I was listening to your, your accent so much, I don't know what was said. What was said in that email? He said he liked it when okay. he was a kid, and he likes it now. Yeah. Thank you, David. It is distracting. It is distracting. What, the accent? Mm. Oh, do you want me to read it again in English? No, no, no I'm sure. No, you're okay. We'll, we'll, we'll rewind, rewind and listen later. You won't. You never listen to anything. <laughs> Paul Mason says, This is the season more than any where my prime memories are of the Target novels, all of which were classics, undermined by viewing of the actual programmes. <laughs> yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Rob Irwin says, One of the easiest seasons to rate. Some seasons go all over the place in terms of what fans like, but this one's always felt fairly uniform in fandom to me. And that also is authentic because, Lee, he has been on the Blue Box podcast. He has. Well, how would you know? You never listened to it. No, I don't. But you told me. Did I? No. Okay. (laughs) Graham Boyd says, Dinosaurs, a spaceman in ancient times, a hovercraft chase and a killer floor. What's not to love about this series? Killer floor? Death of the Daleks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that bit. Mark from the 42 to Doomsday podcast, plug, plug, says, a fairly underrated series in my opinion. (laughs) It's going to wear off in a minute, isn't it? (laughs) Go on, keep going. You're doing the liver puddling action just for change. Oh, God. I can't go from Australian <laughs> to it. Scouse? <laughs> he says, Sarah Jane certainly gives it a lift, but Pertwee seems to have lost some of his sparkle, probably due to the breakup of his team. Mm. And finally, Tim Trewarther says, Oh, a tough one. I've never been a massive fan of season 11. Seems to me like everyone, bar Liz Sladen, who kicks ass, is going through the motions. <laughs> Love the new title sequence, though. Do you know what this is like? It's like an episode of Points of View. Do you remember all those years ago? When oh, yeah. yeah. You got different actors <laughs> to read out the letters in different accents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And here's... So, you know, this is becoming more like the Points of View of the Blue Box, but I like it. What's really worrying, though, is... And I don't know quite where Paul Mason and Graham Boyd are from, so at least two-thirds of the people who've written in with comments about these stories are from Down Under. There you go, stretching all the way to the other side of the world. No, I wasn't talking about... Well, that's not really what I meant about the podcast. What I meant was about season 11. Is there something particular about season 11 that appeals? You're not saying we've used up all our British listeners. We've gone through them all. Used them up. (laughs) 
Right. They're fed up with us. <laughs> have to go elsewhere now. Okay, which story came in last? Simon, would you like to hazard a random guess out of the five stories of season 11? The... No, before we do that, what? shall we actually just say what we think of season 11? What, as a whole? Yeah. Lee, go on, <clears> then. <throat> um, it's one that never really massively stood out, but I'm, I'm with the uh, the writer in... Oh, God. <laughs> the writer in a... Oh, dear. Who is it? Uh, oh, target novels, Paul, this. Paul, Paul, Paul Mason, uh, about the target novels, that you read the target novels and they, you know, it's, no, Invasion of Dinosaurs, Planet of Spiders, Monster, Paladin, much more exciting in the books, and then you watch them and it's like, okie dokie then, that's not exactly what I was expecting, and I, I watched most of these in the uh, B-Sky B and the kind of the early 90s, when they started uh, putting them on cable. Of course, these predate you, don't they? Yeah, so I couldn't watch them. When and these pr- probably predate you pretty much <coughs> as well, Simon. Uh, yeah, well... You I, remember Planet of Spiders? I do, yeah. But nothing else. No. Whereas I'm different. I remember most of season 11, because I was obviously... That was the age where I was really starting to get into Doctor Who, so a lot of season 11 sticks out for me. Hmm. But in terms of the stories themselves, as a sort of entirety well the odd thing about it is of course Time Warrior was recorded as part of season 10 and Robot from the next year was recorded as part of season 11 so actually if you take the Time Warrior off because Time Warrior is a bit different from the other four it does feel different doesn't it I mean it almost feels like uh, you could possibly pop in Tom Baker and quite a few of those stories and it would work and you know the Sladen's in it so that's that's a massive change and I think as somebody else mentioned that John Pertwee was acting slightly differently, you know, because he had a different team and everybody was splitting up and leaving and going and Delgado dying and things like that. So I think they're right. Also, I think the way that it's maybe the the direction or the producer at the time was thinking about doing something different. It had a different feel to it, but I can't quite put my finger on it. No, do you know what I think? Uh, yeah, sort of in a way, but also on the other side of that coin, I also think season 11 is John Pertwee's greatest hits. Oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Invasion of the Dinosaurs, that is kind of quintessential unit story. Mm. It's like, well, for a start, the sort of milieu of it, a deserted London, is basically where, well, not where unit, but where Lethbridge Stewart came in, in the Web of Fear. And it's like, if you're going to put monsters in the middle of London, what is the one monster that all kids want to see in the middle of a deserted London? Dinosaurs. So Invasion of the Dinosaurs feels to me like a quintessential unit story, mm. filled with double-crossing and all that kind of thing. Mm. Death of the Daleks is like another Dalek greatest hits type story from Terry yeah. Nation. Um, Monster of Peladon. You know, Peladon was perhaps the most um, kind of, well, interesting or well-realised or spectacular or memorable alien planet that the Mm. third doctor visited because he didn't visit that many and so a return visit to peladon kind of if you're doing a greatest hits that kind of goes without saying and you've got planet of the spiders which is basically the green death redux Mm. you know take a little frightening thing that kids are scared of and make it giant the time warrior is a bit different but uh, but then again if like i say you ignore the time warrior and include robot instead Robot, again, feels like another basically quintessential unit story. Instead of monsters, this time it's a giant robot. Yeah. I mean, you've got... I mean, Tom Warrior has got a little bit of um, the unit in it as well. And 
Again, I think Tom Baker would work well in that story. Hmm. Time War is the only one that doesn't feel like a greatest hits thing in that no. season. But what Time Warrior has going for it instead is the fact that it's John Pertwee's only proper trip back into history. It's funny, isn't it? You could you could have had Sarah Jane enter on Invasion of the Dinosaurs and put Time Warrior at the end. That'd been a better one, wouldn't it? To go out to instead of Planet of the Spiders. I think you're getting <laughs> ahead of yourself. I think I probably am. And also, you're kind of ignoring how writing works there, Lee. I did, didn't I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was a kid how, again. How would they have killed the him then? How would they have killed him in Time Warrior? Yeah. Uh, but not just that. But yeah. Planet of the Spiders <laughs> yes, was Lee. built to be his last story. It was built I to lead know. up to the point. But my point with the Time Warrior is, if the other four stories and Robot feel like... Uh, almost like the production team treading water because they're just going over their greatest hits then Time Warrior feels like the odd one out. But by the same token, by being the odd one out, by being them trying something new, that's like, it's like when you buy a Greatest Hits album by some band and it's got two tracks on the end that they've written especially for the album. Yeah, yeah. usually awful. But you're, they might be awful. Sometimes they're good, actually. But what yeah, they tend yeah. to be is uh, slightly different from everything else that's on the album. Yeah. Because everything else that's on the album is there by virtue of the fact that it was a hit. Whereas these two songs are on the album by virtue of the fact that they decided to write two new songs. And if they're so really they... cocky, they put a sticker on the front saying featuring the new hits. Yeah. Which haven't been released yet. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah, true. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Time Warrior mm. feels a little bit like the production team doing that, saying, mm. right, we've done all these greatest hits. Oh, we should do something radically different. Oh, well, we've never sent John Pertwee back into the past. Apart from in those last two episodes of The Time Monster, let's do a story set in history. Mm. And so it kind of feels almost as if it was included for those reasons. That would be if they were doing it consciously. I don't think they were doing it consciously. I think they just, I don't think they said, oh, John's probably going to leave at the end of this year. Let's just roll out the greatest hits. I think they just said, what should we fill this season with? Yeah. Let's try these stories. Velvet, running out of velvet jackets. Because I, I tend to kind of, I can almost imagine each season of John Pertwee being a different coloured velvet jacket. And this is the green velvet jacket season. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah. He's also at his, his swaggering best, his, his nonchalance. He's very, he's kind of very nonchalant in this season as well, I, I find. Well, yeah, because he's lost Joe Grant. He's kind of got this thing going on now with Sarah Jane Smith where, because uh, with Joe Grant, he was always like the father figure. Mm. Mm. And even in spite of what fans say about that ending of The Green Death, that is not a lover losing, you know, his lover. That's a father losing his child. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing then with Sarah Jane Smith when she comes in is, She's way more independent than Joe Grant was. Hmm. Because that's how the Joe Grant, John Pertwee relationship works. Like a father and a daughter. And when Sarah Jane Smith comes in, with that extra independence, what happens with the Doctor is, because he's always had this slightly patrician, patronising aspect to his character, because she's independent, rather than... There's either two ways it can go. When somebody comes in who's more independent than what you used to, you can either... Say, okay, that's fair enough. You be independent. And what I'll do is I will accede to your independence. Or else you can go in completely the other direction and become the most 
pompous cock in the room. And that's kind of what the third Doctor does at this point, isn't it? It is interesting that you have that Joe Grant who often goes and makes the tea. So you go, go make a cup of tea, Joe, or whatever. You know, you're being a bit useless. Or anything. And he doesn't do that with Sarah Jane ever, <clears> as far <throat> as I know, because Sarah Jane is obviously that independent journal, journalist. Um, and, you know, the feminist thing is kicking in as well. They, they, you know, Sarah Jane is a very strong person throughout the whole of the season. So he can't really do that with her. It's interesting dynamics. I think it works quite nicely, actually. It's quite fresh. It's, that's what's different about the season, is the dynamics between the two main characters. Yeah, the thing about Joe Grant and the Third Doctor is, and this is perhaps why Mark doesn't especially like the Third Doctor, because that patrician thing is going on, mm. that patronising thing, it feels a bit cosy, because they're so those two characters sort of knit together so well. Because the way she plays it is somebody who needs a father figure. Mm. And the way he plays it is, right, that's who I am then. But when Sarah Jane Smith comes in, you've got these five stories, and I'm talking Invasion of the Dinosaurs to Robot now, basically, where they're doing tried and tested things. And so what you've got instead is a spikier relationship between the Doctor and the Companion, which offsets it. Because I think, I've said this before, I think if you're going to do something different, you also have to go a little bit further in the direction of safe with your safety nets. Otherwise... I think I said this when we were talking about Tom Baker or somebody. If you take it too far, you can alienate your audience mm. by not giving them anything that feels comfortable. There needs yeah. to be something comfortable there in order for you to get away with, yeah. you know, the extra weirdness. I mean, this we talk about Stephen Moffat quite a lot, relating him back to, you know, the past. But I think this is what works for Stephen Moffat. People say Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is always so safe, nobody dies. All this kind of thing. And, you know, anybody who does die will come back a couple of stories later, whatever. They say, oh, it's too safe. And I'm like, yeah, but then there's some really weird shit going down in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. And if Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who was weird and timey-wimey and slightly confusing and difficult to follow, if you don't sort of go with the sort of slightly mad science that he uses which equates to his sort of fairy tale take on it if you're also killing everybody off left right and center you just end up with the audience frazzled mm -hmm. but if you give him a doctor who where the doctor does save the day does make sure that everybody lives or whatever then at least that's a safety net for the people watching so that they're not constantly in yeah, fear of the right. fact that the entire cast is going to die at the end of but every what episode like or whatever he will create the odd character here and there that are pretty likeable or nice, and then either never you never use them again, and then kill them off these little supporting. Yeah, yeah. Rita from the God Complex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she was great, wasn't she? Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, the Good Man Goes to War. What was the name of that uh, soldier? She was quite. Yeah, I know you, you mean. I um, uh, can't remember now, but you know, you get. He does write tiny parts quite well, and you you get to like them, and then bang, they're gone. Or dead Sally Nightingale, you know, again, never came back, she didn't die, but you know, we all thought, God, what a great companion she'd make, she's fantastic. So, well, some of us thought that, but then other ones of us thought, no, Carrie Mulligan's not coming back to Doctor Who, she's never coming back, <laughs> no. she's gonna be in films like Drive, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but the kind of point there, yeah, is that I think Stephen Moffat's doing the same thing everybody's always been doing, but he's just doing it in a different way. 
and obviously he rubs people up the wrong way with it. Right, should we do the stories then? Simon, you were mm. going to take a, a wild guess at which story came in fifth. The Pelster of Monadon. <sighs> Just to make it interesting. Yes, it was the Monster of Peladon. How, uh, how long is it since you've seen the Monster of Peladon? <laughs> oh, God. Do you know what? I think it's it possibly when I picked it up cheap in a bargain bucket from WX Smith on VHS. Oh, you've not, you've not seen it on DVD? No. no. Double, about, double pack. It was a double pack, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. What about you, Lee? How long since you've seen The Monster of um, But when it came on, on VHS all those years ago. So, what, that 15 years so ago? So, you've not seen it for that long either? No. All right. Last well, time. We're probably being a little bit unfair putting it in last place if we haven't watched it. Uh, no. Everybody I did try to get through the whole place. season. But Sorry? Everybody puts it in last place. That's oh, why okay. it's coming last place. It wouldn't have come in last place just from the three of us. <laughs> I do feel sorry for it. I mean, I feel sorry for that Peladon adventure because. You want to really like it, and you think, you know, it deserves a proper watch, a proper look. I've probably seen it three times, actually, in my life, and all I can remember are badgers, badger men running around, and that's it. I don't remember <laughs> anything else about that story. It's kind of weird, so I'm hoping and relying that you... Yeah, well, they, my... your, they kind of look like those, um, something out of the 80s version of the Narnia stories on yeah. the BBC. Yeah, mm. Mm. I... yeah but... I... That's a design thing. I quite like them. Well, it's, it's yeah, obviously a good one, so I remember that part of it. But and there's kind of a reason why they did it. it did, okay, it didn't come off very well, but obviously they were trying to give you the impression of a burrowing creature, right? Right. <laughs> so they went for Badger, okay? Did, was it really that obvious? Was it really that obvious? It wasn't. That's not <laughs> the reason why they did it, was it? Why, was I'm it? guessing. Why didn't they just dress, dress them up as a sack and get them jumping around going, Ooh, hello, I'm a worm. Like they did in the Zarbi <laughs> those years ago. Yeah, but kind of the point is, if you're gonna remember Doctor Who stories as being bad because of the design decisions, then you've got an awful lot of stories to choose I, from. I right? didn't think it was bad. I thought it was a good decision having the badger hair because I remember it. But were, were they miners? Was that what it was? Yeah, miners. Right. Okay. So were they trying to reflect something going on outside? Yeah, in the mining community throughout the seventies was that the point? Well, yeah, because then obviously Thatcher comes in five years later mm. and deals with it in her own way. But that yeah. that that thing with the miners had been going on for like a decade or something by the time she came in. Mm. Arthur Scargill, he didn't become famous just when Thatcher turned up. He was already famous, Arthur Scargill. Mm. Mm. For two or three, two probably governments prior to hers. Yeah, it was trying to reflect what was going on with the miners. It was trying to reflect politics in the way that the first Peladon story had been reflecting politics with the European Union and stuff, the yeah. free market and stuff. But, and some people see that as a bad thing. I was just doing the same thing again. But to me, that feels like a properly used theme. If you're going to go to an alien planet and use it as a metaphor for something that's going on in the real world, revisiting that alien planet would feel, if you didn't use it the second time as a reflection of something else that's going on in the real world, it would feel like you've done it a disservice. And you're dealing with the kind of the upper crust in the first one, aren't you? And this is this deals more with the, the people, the common people. Yeah, that's perhaps where the mistake is. Yeah. Because in the because yeah, in the first one you're dealing with kings and queens and Lord High Chancellors and stuff like that. Mm. 
and the royal beast and such. And the second one's where you actually get to meet the workaday people of Bellinum. And maybe that's what maybe that's what undermines it because it's very difficult to sketch in the working class of an alien planet in a way that feels even remotely real. All interesting. Yeah, because you just it's just it's not something that people tend to do. When you pick up Dune or whatever, you know, a novel by Frank Herbert or whatever, he's not writing the working class people. He's writing the... It's like Game of Thrones. It's called Game of Thrones for a reason. These mm. people don't write the working class. They write, you know, the the ruling class. No, unlike with Game of Thrones, they do touch upon that, but it's not concentrated. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. like... Um, I mean, who'd want, to, you know, who'd want to watch the working class on television? I mean... Well, yeah, but Seriously. no, this is, yeah, but <laughs> no, but in science fiction, when you're sketching yeah. in a working class of an alien planet, it's not so easy. It if you're work, sketching in a working class, if you want to do something like Cathy uh, Come Home or whatever, right? Everybody knows what the working class in the United Kingdom is like because we all live here. Hmm. Or you know, apologies to wherever you may be listening from, but same goes for your country or whatever. You don't have to sketch in the background. You just tell the story and people pick up the background by already knowing it. So you can make offhand references to, I don't know, something that was passed through Parliament in 1983 and most people will pick up on the reference and it will mean something to them. But you try and do the same with something like the Monster of Peladon and either A, it takes genuine talent like Robert Holmes who's good at sketching in this stuff, Although when it comes to things like the Rebos operation, he's still by and large mm. writing the ruling classes. Or else you've got to really make it a section of the working classes that the population watching will recognise, which is, again, why using miners when miners are in the news is probably actually a beneficial thing for the story. Yeah. Because then you can tell a story about the working classes, and apart from the fact that they've all got badger haircuts, at least people kind of recognise their problems and you know their mm. obsessions and the things they worry about. Maybe one of the main problems was it was six episodes long, wasn't it? Yeah, whereas Curse of Peladon was four. Mm. Was it? Yeah, no yeah. So, yeah, so it's a snappier, snappier story. I um, think, though, the introduction of the Ice Warriors halfway through. There's three episodes without and then three episodes with. Much like the invasion with the Cybermen, four episodes before they turn up and then four episodes after. I think that actually helps the monster of Peladon. Yeah. Because for the first three episodes, it's kind of a political story. And then for the last three episodes, it's kind of a monster story with added politics. Yeah. It's good to do that, though, in any long Doctor Who. I mean, the invasion of time, you know, Vardens and then some Tyrants. Yeah, so yeah. It does make a difference. It picks it up, doesn't it? Um, same with the, uh, the Crinoid, the Seeds of Doom. Isn't it? They start in the Antarctica for the first two episodes, go off to a mansion for the next four I like the fact that they can do that with six episodes, and they should. But when you set it all in one place, yeah, without the, a massive change. Of one of the problems with the Monster of Peladon is the fact that it's all indoors in sets. Yeah, and if it was filmed in a castle, wouldn't it, or in the real tunnels somewhere like Green Death and stuff. But I tell you what, I when the Peladon box set DVD set of the two stories came out, I watched. Two episodes a night, across five consecutive nights, Curse of Peladon and Monster of Peladon. 
And I've got to tell you, there wasn't really much of a dip in quality between the first and the second story. Really? And Monster of Peladon, watched two episodes at a time, was much more entertaining than if you sit down and try and watch all six. Mm. Uh, maybe that's mm. another reason for us not really enjoying it so much, because we had to watch it, or we watched it on VHS all yeah. in one go. Yeah. You'd have watched it as a kid week by week so maybe it's better it was designed to be yeah it was designed to be watched Mm -hmm. with you know 167 hours and 35 minutes in between each episode (laughs) is it really that is that right that's right i'll try that what box sets it in again it's in a there's a twin pack of curse of peladon and monster of peladon oh it's just peladon tales right yeah Mm. that's it i don't monster of peladon obviously is the least good story in the season but I've got to be honest, I don't think it's a bad story in the way that something like maybe Time Lash is a bad story. I love that idea of revisiting the planet, essentially. So I want to like it. Yeah. You know, it's not... We do it with Earth enough, so why not with another planet? We don't see it, do we? We don't... It'd be nice for the new series to go back to Peladon. It'd be interesting what they could do with it now. Mm. I'd quite enjoy that, I think. And a, and a new version of Alpha Centauri. Yeah, maybe and maybe not. Do you know the thing that lets Monster Peladon down is perhaps the execution. It feels a bit tired and ragged. Whereas Curse of Peladon had the brio of it being the first time they'd really gone to town on doing an alien planet for John Pertwee. Yeah, yeah. They'd they'd done Colony in Space, but they'd not really properly gone to town on an alien Mm. civilization. That was about Minus as well, wasn't it? Colony in Space. Well, it was about Frontiersmen. Okay, yeah, yeah. But Curse of Peladon, in fact, it's one of the first times that they've properly sketched in an alien civilization altogether. Because mm. back in the 60s, when they were in outer space, it tended to be very much in shades of black and white. Curse of Peladon was one of the first proper attempts in Doctor Who to actually give an alien civilization and make it feel like a real place. And I think yeah. Monster of Peladon tries, perhaps even harder, to maintain that. But just because everybody who's working on it feels a bit tired and some of the direction's a bit sloppy. But so. it's also, I mean, the, the nice thing about those two tells is the, the idea that you've got a more expansive universe around that, that planet. So you've got lots of other alien creatures. In Curse, obviously, they all come together because it's a big... They do in Monster Apparel as well. Yeah, People so like can, Vega Nexus. Exactly, I, I kind of like that. I mean, it's only been seen really... I think Mission to the Unknown did it, didn't it? Yeah, and Dalek Master Plan, yeah. Dalek yeah. Master Plan, yeah. It wasn't... And you don't really get it again. It's no. something like the end of the world. Mm. Exactly. Mm. So a bit Star Trekky. One other complaint that people often make, we've not read any of the comments yet, we'll see if they reflect what we've been talking about in a second. One other pe- thing that people complain about from Monster of Peloton is that the Ice Warriors in Curse, the big twist was that they weren't the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And then people said, oh, and here they come back in Monster of Peloton, they're the bad guys again. But I'm like, okay, so you did the Ice Warriors as the good guy in Curse of Peloton. To do them as the good guys again in Monster of Peladon really would be repeating yourself. And it'd be a waste of the Ice Warriors. Yeah. It kind of relates to the whole Russian thing as well, doesn't it? The Cold War. I mean, there's that... Russians are the good guys in World War Two, and then as soon as it's finished, they're the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, there's a flip-flop situation yeah. that happens in reality. Yeah. The, the, the same thing it. happened with Iraq. Mm. When, they were, when the Iraqis were fighting Iran, we were on Iraq's side, and then once that conflict's over... 
and uh, it turns out the Iraqis have got lots of oil. All of a sudden, they're not friendly with them again anymore. It's all down to who's yeah. in power a lot of the time. Isn't mm. But I don't, that, mm. that lends itself to more of a, you know, more fulfilling kind of race. I mean, obviously, there, there's, there's still the strange thing about the ice warriors about, you know, how do they... How do they wash at night or whatever? Yeah, but, I mean that's probably been answered actually in Cold War. Now they yeah, get out yeah. their suit and have a little run around. <laughs> yeah, you've yeah, still got to yeah. wonder how they wipe their ass with fingers that long. <laughs> no, don't get sandwiches <laughs> anywhere ammunition. But um, no, yeah, and now we know, of course. But in, in those days, it's like you know, you don't get much about their phys and physiognomy or whatever the word is. About how they exist from day to their life. Exactly, but their actual, you know, you've got a bit of a class system there. You've got People are good and bad. I like that. And it's good to see Peladon having the Ice Warriors as the bad guys, seeing as you've already seen it with the Ice Warriors as the good guys. Because Mm. otherwise, you know, it would be a waste. It would be a waste of bringing the Ice Warriors back just to repeat the same trick you performed with them last time. Mm. Mm. And actually, I think the, the plot with Eckersley and the Ice Warriors and the mines in Monster of Peladon, it's quite an interesting story. I don't think it's pulled off especially well, but I do think there's a lot of validity in the story itself. Sorry, you said Are you laughing off. at the fact that I said pulled off? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just, I, I can just see it now anyway. But, um, yeah, with, uh, with the Monster of Peladon then, just, just, just briefly explain, what was the monster doing in it? What was its point again? Was it scaring the miners well, off? It was it being there. used? It wasn't there, yeah. Was it not there? wasn't there was it it was just being Agador yeah Agador it's just the legend of Agador was being used to scare people off to scare off the miners so it wasn't there at all anyway well it turns up at the end again oh does he oh bless him it always turns up at the end doesn't Uh, he I'm sure he turns up at the end now I'm thinking does he yeah he must do Hmm. they couldn't do a Peladon story where he doesn't turn up at the end (laughs) yeah of course he does (laughs) okay no anybody else though before I go into the comments that people have made no 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 no. Okay, Dylan Reese says, long, dull, and features a willy in a cape. Hey. Mind you, you can say about Curse of Peladon, short, dull, and features a willy in a cape. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Mason says, the perfect length in book form, with aliens that feel alien and not just lashed together. And it's true, I think, with the Peladon stories, they really did bother to make the those different species of alien that were coming into Peladon feel more like fully rounded creatures that come from a civilization than yeah. just representative monster from Planet X or whatever. Mm. Is it a Brian Hales? Yeah. Novel. But Brian Hale novel. Screenplay, Screenplay script. Yeah. Mm. But Brian Hales was often significantly rewritten by Terence Diggs, so I'm not sure how much of Terence Diggs is in there. Christopher Bryant says, again, I liked the book, but really haven't remembered much about the six TV episodes. Good hair, though. Weird Bean says it's dull. Not as dull as you might remember, but still. A weak last hurrah for the Ice Warriors, though they do get to be sneaky again. Also has Sarah Jane espousing the virtues of feminism. Very nice to hear in the Third Doctor's era. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's because Queen Thalira's on the throne after David Trout has gone. And I've got to agree with him, seeing the Ice Warriors being sneaky. Because the, the, the moment where they arrive, and the next episode or so after that, where they're hidden in that spaceship down in the bowels of the planet, and nobody knows that they're there, I think there's some good stuff there. Especially when you're eight. 
when you're eight and you know there's a spaceship full of ice warriors in the heart of the planet that nobody else knows about, you're like, oh my God, Doctor, just go down there and look. Just look, that's a spaceship, it's got ice warriors. And that's what you do when you're eight. And that's great telly for an eight-year-old because you're getting the eight-year-old to engage with it on an emotional level. Hmm. Lee thinks I went a bit too far there. <laughs> I just saw you as an eight-year-old. It's a bit weird. <clears throat> Richard Hogarth says, a massive disappointment after Curse of Peladon and such a waste of the Ice Warriors being bad guys again. Tristan Alfaro says, shudder. A boring revisit to a reasonably mediocre story. Bit sad to see that the Ice Warriors have moved back to generic baddies after some really interesting development in their previous appearance. And was it really a good idea to base the story on Britain's entry to the common market? Sounds about as exciting as trade negotiations in a certain <laughs> other franchise. Yeah. That's Star Trek reference, is it? No, it's uh, Star Wars. Of course it is. Oh, what was I thinking? Gary Akers says, I ate oatmeal for breakfast this morning and that was more exciting. <laughs> Did it make your hair go funny? Mark from 42 to Doomsday says, more padding than the Rani's shoulder pads. <laughs> Pertwee doesn't seem to want to be there and is almost phoning it in by this stage. Worst Pertwee ever. And finally, Tim Trewarther says the most pointless serial in the entire run of the series. Not so much a sequel to Curse of Peladon, more a rewrite or reimagining, as the kids would say these days. Pertwee phones in his performance. Six episodes long, but feels like 15. Second worst Pertwee serial. Do you know what? I never asked him what he thought the first worst Pertwee serial was. Mutants, maybe? That's pretty bad. Could be. It's pretty bad, isn't it? A lot of right. people think Time Monsters up there is one of the absolute. Well, it's nadirs. probably up there, but I mean, you know, there's a. You know, <laughs> some people would I argue like for. Yeah, no, some I people like would. Time Monster. Yeah, but it's all a matter of taste. Some people think Claws of Axos is absolutely desperately bad. It is, but that's not the point, is it? It's Doctor Who mm. we're talking about here. <laughs> so, but it's you're good. right, it's the enjoyment factors, <clears throat> I mean, personal. Right, story that came in fourth, then, it, well, it, this is one of two, but it's pretty obvious, really. Anne Lee? Planet of the Spiders. Yeah, what did you think of Planet of the Spiders, then, Lee? Uh, a little bit watery, a little bit weak, a little bit um, stretched. There wasn't a lot in there, but do you know what? I really like the ideas in it. I mm. love the idea of the um, kind of the retreat and the, the strange goings on. Om money, bad me, om, om money, bad me, om. Om money bad me om 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 om money bad me om. But the spiders were uh, a little bit uh, rubbish. <laughs> God knows what that sounds like. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> How do we remember that? <laughs> I don't know, I remember that. I've read his novel so many times, that bit on Marnie Bad Me On was burned in my memory, <laughs> mainly because it wasn't until the VHS came out that I had any idea how you were supposed to say it. <laughs> and sing it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. sing it correctly. Mm, well, I've seen it enough times. That's going back to the Phantom Menace, isn't it? Om Annie Padme Om. Mm. Do you think it's a secret plan <clears throat> of Planet of the Spiders? George Lucas? Oh, God. Probably. I mean, the great thing about it is, I mean, it's, you know, it's his swan song. 
And uh, I like the way he goes, the fact that it, it kind of pierces his arrogance by, you know, nicking a, a blue crystal to impress the young girl, almost, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, he pretty much wrecks a society and has to go back and put it back. She punctures his midlife crisis. There you go. That's the metaphor right there. Well, it's true, isn't it? Mm. And to come out of a midlife crisis and relax into a new body, it's kind of Buddhism does midlife crises in metaphor. <laughs> but, and it's, but it was seeded, wasn't it? He kept mentioning uh, being on the side of a mountain with, uh, with his little mate mm-hmm. you know, um, and all that sort of thing. So you do get it. That was quite nice. It was kind of dropped in through the serial. And of course you get the first journey to Metabolus 3 in The Green Death. Where you get that yeah. little segment at the start. Yeah, so nice to... Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? I love that bit. It's so funny. It's it? crap, isn't it? The face is amazing. <laughs> John Pertwee, brilliant. <laughs> it's got some great ideas. Do you know what Planet of the Spiders would really have benefited by? You know that... CGI. Sec- <laughs> no, well, no. Do you know <laughs> that, that second episode is that chase sequence that lasts like something like 15 minutes? And they spent a lot of money on that chase sequence, right? Mm. But because of that, the first, the third and the fourth episodes all take place inside of the monastery or whatever it is. Mm. The, what is it? It's not a monastery, is it? It's, it's something like a retreat, whatever. isn't it? Yeah. The, the retreat, yeah. And yeah, you've got a little bit of location work at the start where Sarah's driving up in her little car. And if it had, if they'd have taken that chase sequence, that sequence out of the second episode and spent that money on doing a bit more location work. Yeah. And if they'd have spent a bit of that money on doing a slightly better set for Metabolus 3, and you yeah. know, spent a little bit more time with the actors than they did with the vehicles. It reminds me of the Pirate Planet, the Metabolus 3 town, town folk. It's got that same kind of, mm. you know... Faux. I don't, I don't know... It just feels faux, if, doesn't it? It feels, feels faux, but I don't know how... You know, when you're eight years old, would it have fooled you at that age? Because I'm sure the well, do- I'm sure the Doctor Who of six my when I age, saw this. which was uh, Pirate Planet, I think, when I was six years old, I knew it was a set, or I knew it wasn't real. I know did, when did, I did... watched Planet of the Spiders when I was six, I'm sure I bought it. Right. I'm sure I did. I didn't start not buying Doctor Who until about season fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Mm-hmm. Graham Williams years. Mm. I think there's a slight disconnect there in that by the time he gets to the Pirate Planet, because the money's running out every year at this point, I think you're starting to get used to the fact that it's not real, and so it becomes more obvious. Mm. Whereas in Planet of the Spiders, there are not many occasions during that sort of period of Doctor Who, the sort of middle 70s, where there are long stretches where it's quite obviously not real. Mm. So, you know, to ask you to buy that Metabolus 3 is not real, when everything else around it does feel real, you can suspend your disbelief just that little bit more, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Mm. <clears throat> but if it had been more like the first two episodes of The Stones of Blood in execution, with a better mix of location and uh, mm. interiors in the studio, if the story had opened up just that little bit more so that there'd been... To all intents and purposes, Planet of the Spiders actually very like Image of the Fendal. It could have worked like Image of the Fendal does. I mean, it's, you know, it's basically the same story almost. 
But 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 where it goes wrong is that they splash all their money on that chase sequence, mm-hmm. and nobody seems to care about the rest of it. Some really nice ideas, like you said, Lee. Yeah. So the last hurrah for John, though, isn't it? Because he obviously said, "Well, if I'm going to go, well, if I'm going to go, I, w- I want to go around in a Hummerville. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use my bloody car. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go on a mountain and I want to go on a plane and a chopper and a hovercraft." Um, Do you think Barry Letts <laughs> was sitting there thinking, "Oh my God, that guy's got too big for his boots. <laughs> Let's write a story in which we pretend we're puncturing the doctor's pomposity, <laughs> actually do it to Pertwee instead." Because it could be, it could be I a story know. about John Pertwee as much as it is about the Doctor. It's Pertwee's really, end, of, end of time, isn't it? Um, mm. It is really. Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. basically, yeah. Yeah, because you know he's, yeah, well, we do know, don't we, that pretty much from the beginning it is, he's on his way out for the whole thing. Mm. Yes, this is it. This is his final one. It's a shame because... I remember really liking the Target book. Yeah, it's a great, great story. Cover. Yeah. It's just that on the screen... You know, it just it just feels like everybody who was doing it was enjoying themselves too much so that they weren't working very hard. But this seems to be throughout this season a bit where they're thinking ambitiously. They've got some great, huge ideas, mm. filmic ideas actually, a lot of them, oh, yeah. but they just don't have that budget to pull it off. So no. visually you're always going to fall down. Invasion of the dinosaurs. But sometimes, whatever, even really without the budget, sometimes you can do it anyway because everybody pulls together and says, right, let's mm. make the best of it. But with Planet of the Spiders, and the same is true of Death to the Daleks, it just feels like nobody's making that effort anymore. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And yet, you've got... I mean, on the plus side, you've got John Durth, who's absolutely amazing in this story. And the guy who plays Lupton, uh, I can't remember the actor's oh, name, yeah, but he was great. he's amazing as well. Yeah. Some great performances in Planet There are, since, and um, Liz Sladen, again, in every episode Lupton, uh, that Liz has been, and she's never done anything wrong in my book. I think she's solid from the, she, you know, she starts running, mm. basically, and mm. carries on mm. to the end. Solid acting all the way. She's really good in this. There's a persistence of character, isn't there? Though mm. as well, it doesn't. There's a little lull towards the middle of the season. Uh, season where, you know, she becomes the screamy companion a bit. But um... well, in Monster of Peladon again, where she does all that stuff about the feminism with Queen Thalira, but then when she gets to meet the Ice Warriors down in the caves and that, and there are some scenes towards the end where it's like. You know, you get tied up in this room and then we'll go off and do this. And it's oh, like, yeah. no, that's not Sarah Jane Smith, is it? No, but that's not her, <clears> is it? Again, that's that's the writing. Yeah. But uh, she's inca- she's incarcerated that much, is she? Not as much as Joe was. Uh, no, probably not, because Joe spent an awful... Yeah, but Joe was in uh, Frontier in Space and almost everybody yeah. in Frontier in Space was incarcerated <laughs> more than any other companion in all their stories put together. <laughs> But we're not talking. And she was she was put in jail about six times in kind of monsters, but to the point where she makes the joke of it. Oh come on then, go and lock me up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you thought they've learned people all don't those... like that. I can't believe that. That's still one of those stories I can't quite believe people don't like. Carnival, Carnival of Monsters. Yeah. How can people not like that? That's absolutely brilliant. Mm. But again, it was a very odd choice for the five faces of Doctor Who. Oh, I don't know. I thought it was. It's not typical. Exactly, it's a very atypical choice. Yeah. And you would have, what you would have wanted in an ideal world, if you were going to choose 
four, four stories to represent the first four Doctors. Okay, so they all have to be four episodes long. But you, in an ideal world, want four typical stories. Yeah. So for, I don't know what you choose for the first Doctor, four episodes long, and there's nothing typical in his, his three years. Probably an historical story, really. Mm. is about as typical as you're going to get. Maybe. I'm thinking if you had a choice of everything, whether it exists or not. So, for the second Doctor, perhaps you'd prefer Tomb of the Cybermen or the Moon Base, because a base under siege with the Cybermen is basically your most typical second Doctor story. Then for the third Doctor, you'd want four-episode story with Unit, really. Maybe Day of the Daleks. Yeah, that would be the one, wouldn't it? But they had they they put on Curse of Paladin, didn't they? As well as that was in the Monsters season the following year. Yeah, yeah. That's right, because I was trying to convince my German students to watch it and they thought it was the biggest letter ever. Yeah. <laughs> Should we do the notes on Planet of the Spiders yeah. then? The comments. I keep saying notes, comments. That's because you said notes when you were talking about the <laughs> penis that was drawn at the bottom of the front page. Uh, Dylan Reese says, never been a huge fan of this story, but Tommy... I said Lupton, I meant Tommy. because because he keeps saying clever Lupton. But Tommy is an incredible character and his story beautiful. Pertwee's last few moments are great and the idea of him floating alone and dying in the time vortex is moving. Maybe he did a tenant and went to see Liz, Joe and Pigbin Josh. Uh, Maybe so. Paul Mason says, A shame, so poor a send-off for Pertwee. He deserves so much better. Maybe stayed on... Maybe would have stayed on through Robot and saved the day in a proper unit story reflective of his tenure. Yeah, maybe that's what was needed. Christopher Bryant, get rid of all the stuff with Gareth Hunt and the tribe of no-hopers on loan from a poor episode of Blake 7 and you would again be able to shave this down from six episodes and make it much, much better. Yeah, totally agreed. Everything in the meditation centre and with the spiders is good. Weird Bean, a marvellous celebration of Pertwee's era loaded with pointless chase scenes, odd vehicles, tramp torture and spiritualistic codswallop. <laughs> tramp torture? What was that? <laughs> well, that happened quite a lot during Pigpin Josh. We just oh, had yeah, him yeah. mentioned in Claws of Axos. And either, <laughs> I mean, it, it, right back in the very first story, Spearhead from Space. Okay, he's not a oh, tramp, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Seely's not that much far off, is tramp he? Tramp torture. Uh, some excellent performances too ambition outstripped the FX again but still great ah and also Kismet Delgado oh yeah because of course Roger Delgado was supposed to be in I'm slapping my bollocks now I must stop that was supposed to be in uh, John Pertwee's last story Mm. and of course sadly died and instead you have his widow in there Mm. which is I was going to say which was a nice touch yeah it was Mm. I was going to say it was Kismet, but that's her name. That would be awful. It would sound like I was making a joke, and I didn't really mean to. So. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Richard Hargarth says, This would have been top, but for me it could have been a four-parter and still worked. Some brilliant moments from Pertwee and that action episode. Silly, but fantastic. <laughs> <clears throat> Tristan Alfaro says, Should have been two episodes shorter. Everybody agrees it should have been a four-parter. <laughs> The chase is fun, but does not move the plot on. Although always good to see a comedy tramp getting run over by a hovercraft. (laughs) Strike the goodies. (laughs) In fact, he says it would have been great to have seen Pigbin Josh again for that part. Although, yes, I know, he says he's dead. 
The subplot with Tommy is an interesting idea, but I could never work out if it is patronising or not, especially the yokel accent becoming received pronunciation. The regeneration is the best bit, bringing in cod Buddhist themes and some wonderful acting from Liz Sladen and Nick Courtney. Of course, we have not even mentioned um, <clears throat> Cho G and um, what's his face? Mm. Great actors, great parts. Yeah. And of course, that's the Time Lord that John Pertwee is doing all his homilies about earlier in the era, yeah. era as you were saying, yeah, Lee, yeah, with, the, yeah. with the foreshadowing stuff. Fantastic actors. Of course, the one who plays Cho G is the one who plays Lynx in the, in the Sontaran story. That's right, yeah. Now, I like this. I wasn't sure if I liked it when I first saw it. I thought, this is a bit weird. But I really liked it because it's, you know, time, we don't know what Time Lords get up to. We don't really know their race that well at this point. So anything to do with the Time Lords is always very mysterious and strange. And I, when I read this, I loved the idea that you had this 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 person helping the regeneration along, floating around and, and being a future version of himself, whatever it was. And of course, we get more Which of that is, in Legopolis. Yeah, foreshadowing yeah, the Watcher. They and they cocked yeah. it up, though, in Legopolis, didn't cocked they? Cocked it up in Legopolis. That didn't make any sense whatsoever. <clears throat> no, it was like throwing the Watcher in just for the sake of having him there, rather than having actually yeah. be a proactive part of what's going yeah, on. Or have Peter Davison play the part of the Watcher, which would have been even better. I thought it was when I first saw that, but I'm sure we've discussed this before, so <laughs> let's move on. <clears throat> the... Uh... Gary Akers says, great build-up to the regeneration, which was true to Pertwee's character, but the rest of this story is an out-of-control, unfocused mess. Mark from 42 to Doomsday, we all know, he just wrote that so that I'd write 42, so that I'd have to read out 42 to Doomsday at the end of every story. <laughs> yes, we know, Mark. We all know it's two episodes too long, but Pertwee's final scene more poignant now that Nick Courtney and Liz Sladen are no longer with us. Yeah. And finally, Tim Trawartha says, love all the Buddhist subtext, but on... No, it's barely even a subtext, is it? It's pretty much a text. <laughs> but on the whole, this story is pretty weak. Episode two is self-indulgent crud, but Jenny Laird's astonishing performance of Nesca has been rightly acclaimed by fandom as the worst performance ever given in Doctor Who, by the way. No, I wouldn't say that. I think I was... Uh, was the, who was the guy in The Mutants? Con. Oh, that's pretty bad too. That is a terrible performance. Oh, God. Possibly Somebody worst. should edit a video together where it's just those two characters interacting. <laughs> <clears throat> Finally, and Tim f f ends up by saying, disappointing end to Pertwee's reign. Right, when I was nine, I used to read the novelisation of Planet of the Daleks every year without fail, probably twice a year. And do you know what I did immediately when I finished it? I read the novelisation of Death of the Daleks. And you know why? Apart from the fact that because I enjoyed them both. But because I enjoyed the story, the plot, the characters, and all the little bits, the little sort of segments and episodic nature of Planet of the Daleks so much. And Death of the Daleks was like a remix of that. So it was almost like reading one novel that was twice as long. Two stories for the price of one. But... When you eight, if you like something, then if something else comes along that's very like it, you like that too, mm. right? All this by way of a preamble that Death of the Daleks came next in the list of voting. <laughs> but in a world where there's no VHS, no DVD, no online, no 
you know, clouds and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Sounds like the title theme to Only Fools and Horses. <clears throat> if you liked Planet of the Daleks, if you were seven or eight when Planet of the Daleks was on, when Death of the Daleks came on the following year, it was great. Mm. You didn't notice what the similarities were. And although I've just said, you know, I read the two novels back to back because I enjoyed the similarities, you know, I didn't realise that it was because of the similarities that I was enjoying them. You know, you just read one and then thought, oh, I'll read the other one now. And I think I think we forget that with DVD and with mm, watching mm. all four episodes in a go. We forget that when you were a kid, when Death of the Daleks was on, it was the best story ever. Mm. And, you know, it was one of the first ones released on VHS. I was going to say, I think it's the first VHS I bought. And you probably watched it over and over, or if you're anything like I did. Yeah. yeah. Lee? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I found the last, I think it was episode, last two episodes, a little bit creepy. A bit like a cheap crystal maze, really, when they yeah. was a bit hokey. But apart from those bits, um, you know... The novel read oh, like the Star novel Wars. The novel was incredible. <laughs> yeah. And it had the best cover. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Apart yes, from yes. the uh, Chris Akilos kind of early ones, which I, I absolutely adore now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the cover that just shouted and screamed, Excitement! Yes. Death to the Daleks! Explosions! <laughs> Stuff going on! Exactly. <laughs> it was yeah. like that. You know, I just thought, wow, this is the best thing ever. And when we actually, well, when I actually watched it, I wasn't that disappointed, actually. I was, <clears> I was quite excited about the fact that the Daleks couldn't fire their laser guns. That's such when a I, brilliant idea. When I first watched the VHS. Hang on, let's just get that. Yeah, that's not really what we want to hear. That's <laughs> what Sharon just wants to hear. <clears throat> but not coming from Simon. Yeah, they look like those things with the ping pong balls. We used to click them. Mm. And they... Yeah, anyway. Yeah. It didn't last long enough into the story, really? though. The, the, the premise was the Daleks are disabled, mm. can't use their weaponry. Let's see what we can make of this. But then by the end of the first episode, they've got new weapons. So it's yeah. trouble with being it's older, isn't it? Trick. first thing when I watched it the other night was, okay, so the weapons don't work. So how the hell are they moving around then? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They've got but, men but, but, in them with little legs pedalling them around. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, psychokinetic energy. There it is. Mm. Oh, right, okay. You can baffle Gab your way out of any black spot. <laughs> going back to the subject of the VHS when I first bought it and put it in I was expecting Star Wars and what I got was not Star Wars and I thought oh my god but actually sorry if... what did you watch it on VHS yeah VHS when the VHS so, came so you out. hadn't seen it the first time around oh no no yeah when I saw it when I was a kid right, it was yeah. like Star Wars oh I see yeah. I and then when the I bought book. the VHS yeah. I was so bitterly disappointed but then I watched it again a couple of weeks later because it was still the only old Doctor Who I had mm. and it was fantastic some of the designs good. I mean, the the, the Exelon creatures. Okay, oh. they they might look a little bit rubbish when they run around. Like people hate the web with the place in the web because of the little creatures in it. Um, I don't know why. Are you talking about the Exelons in the cows or Belal? Belal. All right. Yeah. So you got that kind of yeah. But the masks of John Friedlander, they're great masks. They're great. They're great. Brilliant. Masks. I think they're really good. And I, and again, another believable looking race. We didn't really get to know about their background. It didn't matter too much. When you got an excellent city, I liked them. I thought they were great. Yeah, Companions. I thought the cowled ones were terrifying, terrifying. absolutely yeah. terrifying. 
And, uh, you know, you look at the production of it now and the voices don't fit with them and all this kind of stuff. And the masks are a little bit hokey because they're still cheaply made. Mm. But, I mean, the design is great. In lovely photographs, use, they look amazing. use of quarry as well. It's a probably, good use of yeah, 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 one yeah. of the best uses, actually. Using the different levels quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, actually convince us as an alien planet for mm. once. Yes. Death of the Daleks. Yeah, definitely. Way more than Planet of the Daleks did with his studio jungle. Yeah. I know, that was... But, you know, that's what Doctor Who was then. And like I say, if you're five, six, seven, eight, you don't care. You're just following the characters. Four episodes, wasn't it, this one? Death of the Daleks was four, yeah. Yeah, so it snaps along at a pace, doesn't it? Mm. It, just, it does just let it down a little bit with that. It's the same with Pyramids of Mars. That's what lets it down for me, Pyramids of Mars. You get this the end, strange the last crystal episode. maze moment where you've got to try yeah. and solve the puzzle to get through the door. So and the puzzles care. are always a bit... Well, crank handle. I can't remember what it was. What was it? Crank handle. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. great. I love that. Oh, and the... There's a little hole over here. Hang on a minute. <laughs> You're talking Brilliant. Sarah Jane in episode one. Yes. Oh, yeah, Lee's talking the city in the end. Oh, right, okay. Where you've got puzzles on the walls. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. But I know what you mean. As, yeah, puzzles on the walls. <laughs> well, that's the it's thing. It's also the, the rubbish puzzle in Five Doctors, isn't it, where the, it's pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The pie Which is, thing, what? But it's kind of an homage <laughs> to this. Well, I think it is. It's Terry's digs. Predating the adventure game. Celestial toy room as well. I think anything to do with puzzles and games in Doctor Who, just don't do it. Please. <laughs> There are some interesting things going on. Terranation doesn't understand the TARDIS and nobody bothers to correct him. <laughs> so you do get all this wit. The TARDIS has lost all its power. <clears throat> and again, logically, so how does it land then? And all this kind of stuff. It doesn't make any sense. No. But, but having said that, like in Planet of the Daleks, the first episode, where the tar TARDIS is engulfed with these fungus stuff and starts to run out of oxygen... <clears throat> an attack on the TARDIS when you're a little kid. Mm. It's terrifying. I, I never had a problem with any <clears throat> of those things that, um, you know, no. when the TARDIS got Suddenly when you realise later on that, Terran's, that yeah. Terry Nation's the only guy who ever wrote that stuff into his script. <laughs> but that, you know, that's the thing. It's it's boys' own adventure. <clears throat> it's the kind of thing you would write in a comic strip and, and Terry Nation was always very like that, wasn't he? It's very cartoony. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the Mandragora Helix when it kind of latches on. And, uh, well, that's not Terranation. No, I know. So somebody else did it slightly differently. Louis Marx. Yeah. The thing about um, this is that it is Terranation writing something that is way beyond what the production can cope with. That filmic thing again. And it's Michael Bryant on the direction who did Sea Devils and The Green Death, I think. And he does a fairly reasonable job in pulling most of it off. But it does look hokey now. Mm. But but I'm just going to repeat it again. It didn't when I was six. Is the, it is the city the CGI? Is it I say CGI? Is it done with CSO or was yes. it yes? Yeah, a model. It's a model. It's a model. Yeah. It's a model with CSO. Yes. Fabric. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that doesn't look quite so good anymore, does it? But uh, the first a little flashy bulb at the top. A lot so of it doesn't look good these days. The wires. But again, on the there. idea is good. It's like an Aztec kind of design mm. yeah yeah mm. great idea yeah yeah I think it's a quest isn't it it's an easy quest termination exactly yeah, quest yeah. Is the quest. Well, he puts you in a spot and says yeah because that was the difference between this and Planet of the Daleks in Planet of the Daleks it's right right 
there are lots of Daleks here, we need to defeat them. In Death to the Daleks, there's, there's a problem here, we need to solve the problem. And work with the Daleks for the first part, which is... Which is an interesting... Idea. Should have been an interesting idea. He just didn't quite work with Yeah, it. he didn't do anything with it. He immediately gives the Daleks guns and... Yeah, but they're still conniving, on It's quite nice that, you know, you, you still get that. Oh, yeah, we'll... Um, We'll help out until uh, we, we feel like... Until we've fixed our guns. And then we'll shoot them all dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Death of the Daleks is one of those stories that... I don't think anybody would ever put it, you know, in their highest-ranking Doctor Who stories. Mm. But it's hard not to like it. You it's know, like, like that cover for me, I think. <laughs> I think you'd have to have a heart of stone not to enjoy Death of the Daleks. It's, it's enjoyable. It's a romp. Really yeah, is what it that's is. What it is. Mm. I've still got that funny feeling of knowing it really well that I did watch it at the time, but I, I couldn't. I must have been well. It would have been two or three. Might have been the book. It could be. It could be. Could be the book uh, giving maybe me false memories. Pictures. Yeah, I just remember the Exelons. But were they were they on the Weetabix cards? The Exelons. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that same old thing, isn't it? And it was in you know they they covered that quite a lot I think because it's <clears> quite a memorable black and white picture in Doctor Who magazine that's weekly well the, the, the story had a in that set of the Weetabix cards there were six lots of four cards and one of those lots of four cards was entirely Death of the Daleks oh mm. that's what it is then I think it was Dalek Bell Allen Excellence if I remember mm, rightly mm. But then another one was entirely Monster of Peladon, which had Vagan Exos and Blore and the Ice Warriors. <laughs> but then again, there was that stuck in my memory, so that when I did see Monster of Peladon years later, and it got to the end of the first episode, and Vagan Exos and Blore were both dead, and I'm thinking, what the hell? <laughs> Is that actually how you said it? Yes. <laughs> Should we do the comments for Death of the Daleks then? Oh, no. Dylan Reese says, the first episode scared the shit out of me as a kid. <laughs> it's Terranation by numbers, the score is awful, and the guest stars average to pants, yet it's strangely watchable. Belal is one of the best realised creatures of the classic series. Can't argue with any of that. And yeah, the score. Ah, we don't need to talk about that. We talked about it a few weeks ago, didn't we? The score? The music. Oh, yeah. Wap, 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 <laughs> Paul Mason says a truly iconic cover and spooky atmosphere. Yes, the first episode is just terrifying. I, I, yeah. Until you've mentioned now, I, I forgot how claustrophobic it felt watching the first time around. So yeah, a good idea actually. That opening scene with the guy running along from the spaceship, mm -hmm. and you see all these cowled figures in the twilight up at the top of the. Mm. You know, hill or whatever it is, overlooking oh, yeah. him. Yeah, and then pre predating the Jawas R two D two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that lived in my memory for years afterwards. Until it wasn't until I got the book where I realised that that where that memory had come from. Mm. And the book was about four years later. So for four years, that scene lived in my memory. I didn't even know it was Doctor Who. Mm. Christopher Bryant says. For some reason, this story never caught my imagination as much as the target novelisation of it did. Maybe it's the tedious reuse of flaming torches and human sacrifice. Maybe it's the <laughs> stupid suicidal Dalek. Maybe it's the little puzzles in the final episode, but it's got a good beginning. Some, though not all, interesting characters in amongst the humans and Belal. Yeah. 
Weird Beans, there's another FX ambitious story. Great fun too. The cliffhanger, that's a precursor to the easiest pie, always makes me smile. We should point out that cliffhanger to episode three, where the Doctor stops Belal from stepping on the squares, wasn't supposed to be the cliffhanger for episode three, but the episodes, one was overrunning and one was underrunning, so they moved it. Why they stopped it at that particular point That's right, still yeah. beggars belief. Yeah, I remember <clears throat> laughing at that thing. What the hell was that about? Yeah, the cliffhanger was supposed to be one of the other puzzles. So it was a terrible cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. One of the worst, in fact. And ever. yeah, the but the other two cliffhangers in this well, the second one's okay. The first one's pretty good. I mean, it's just the general yeah, Daleks. What's that? That, that third one. I do, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It makes Sylvester McCoy look like a genius. Richard Hogarth says, not a great Dalek story, but who can forget the killer floor? Tristan, there's a theme developing here, isn't there? Tristan Alfaro says, okay, the music is rubbish and there's so much that could be better, but it's not a bad little story. Mm. Creepy opening with the TARDIS being drained of energy, some great concepts, and it also included Belal, the best alien companion who never was. Yeah. I love that the Daleks carry little toy TARDISes in their saucers. <laughs> Jim Hall says, with his huge eyes, meek, permanently nervous character and diminutive Cadbury's Flake body, Belal should really have been a much bigger hit with the kids. Screw the Paternoster gang. The Who spin-off I demand has Belal and Bok from the Demons sharing a flat. Somewhere between an odd couple sitcom and a harrowing drama about abusive relationships, a typical episode would have Belal spending all day making an expertly iced cake for the couple's anniversary. Bok returns home in a spiteful mood, wordlessly zaps the flat to smithereens and pops off again. Belal is left sobbing as he holds a singed photo of the pair in happier days. And now for Centura turns up, who's the landlord. This would prompt Belal's signature move of staring off into empty space, softly muttering, The Doctor, he was kind to me. <laughs> Each episode ends with Belal down the pub while his friends the Torum would be with his friends the t- <laughs> while his friends the Torum would be and the Shrivenzal try in vain to cheer him up. Yeah. <laughs> but came home stoned again. Shrivenzal, we can't play Shabakni, can't we the table? Gary Akers says, unmemorable. The idea of the Doctor teaming up with the Daleks against a pro- common problem is great, but goes absolutely nowhere in the execution. Mark from that other podcast says, who doesn't love killer floor tiles and saxophone music, Spandau Ballet style? At least Terry Nation wasn't rewriting the Daleks again. And was the TARDIS losing power in episode one an attempt to mirror the power blackouts of the mid-70s? Oh, maybe. Finally, Tim Trewarther. Try to guess the scene in part two where Pertwee decides to quit. This is a dull story full of tedious, overdone Terry Nation tropes and some poor acting. Belal is cool, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, there's a lot to agree with there, I think. I wouldn't say it's necessarily dull, but that's probably my own personal, you know, uh, yeah. experience of it. Like you being an eight-year-old or whatever, watching a six-year-old. But apart from that... Yeah, I don't think it's dull. No. Anyway, story number two, the story that came second, and Lee, I think it's your turn again to reveal, because well, there's probably a few people wondering. There probably is. What could it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Is that a clue? <laughs> Is that an expertly provided clue? Is that something that makes me and Simon go, oh gosh, actually, we've got it written down in front of us, but I did thought... we get it wrong? Because that clue was so bad. I thought you were saving that noise for the redhead in Death of the Daleks. Uh, no, it's uh, Jurassic Park of the, uh, of the 70s. It's the invasion of the dinosaurs. <clears throat> the one thing that spoils this story and goes without saying, but I'm going to have to say it so we can get it out of the way, is the dinosaurs. It is, and they are atrocious. They're probably the worst things on TV. Especially the deflating T-Rex. Yeah, terrible, terrible stuff. Because it was supposed to move backwards and they couldn't make it move backwards. It looks like it's deflating. (laughs) But, I mean, you know... (laughs) We're waiting for the day. Be thankful for it. I mean, it's... You know, I'm sure technology's there, and we are all waiting for the day when one day they'll be able to just stick in. They don't have to be massively brilliant Jurassic Park dinosaurs, but somebody could... Put in some half decent dinosaurs, and that'll be a, a much more watchable episode. Uh, I don't series. think it'll happen. It won't happen, will it? No. But what a great story! I love this story. Yeah. The Target book. I think this is the one that everybody talks about. An incredible cover. Who do we know who did the artwork? For that well, cover? Chris Achilles did the clack one. Are you talking the clack one? Or no, no, no. Oh, yeah, you're one. right. You're right. Actually, no. The clack one was was fantastic. I mean, the semi-photographic but one. The second yeah, yeah, one yeah. was equally good. I was sat the there. Tyrannosaurus was Rex outside oh, God, the should be remembered. Yeah. So good. Remember the artist. It's the one of only two Target books for which I have two copies because I wanted both covers. Exactly. Yeah. Now, shall I tease you with what the other one is? You want Well. Oh, I'm going to say Simon is a clue. Oh, right. Okay. You know? Terror of the Ortons. Exactly. Ortons. He goes against Ortons. <laughs> Jim Ortons. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's fair enough. That's lovely, that eye. That is just... Yeah. yeah. Mm. Good. But then but the original's think... great as well. But so. that, that dinosaur on the front cover, I mean, you know, it's brilliant. But at the same time, I curse it. Because what I I knew, I mean, we all knew that the dinosaurs weren't very good. There were never any pictures, as far as I can remember, in Doctor Who Monthly. They never, no. really, they never covered it, did they? They never no. put them in. So I didn't really know what they looked like. So when I eventually got uh, the DV, uh, not DVD, DVD, VHS of it, I had it on my shelf for such a long, probably about six, seven months before I watched it. Really? I sat there thinking, I don't want to do this because I love the book so much. I know this is going to spoil it. Mm. And I thought, no, we're going to have to do it. Watch the first episode. And stopped and thought, flipping out, this is going to be brilliant. Yeah. I don't believe it. First episode is one of my all-time top five first episodes. Oh, definitely. It's just a fantastic episode. So Black and White helps as well, though, doesn't it? Mind you, Death to the Daleks yeah. is another one in my top five first what? episodes. Oh, really, is it? Okay. Yeah. But, um, no, I don't know. Was it was in Black and White, then? Been, it would have been on VHS. It would have been on VHS, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would have been, wouldn't it? I loved it. It was fantastic. The whole thing could have been in Black and White. Mm. Atmospheric, fantastic opening, <clears throat> Day of the Trivet style, you know, mm. right up my street. Same uh, as Dalek Invasion of Earth and Web of Fear, basically. Yeah, exactly. And Which then, are also in my top five. First of course, episodes. it all went slightly skewed. The story, I love the story. I thought this the whole story all the way through from start to finish, even the Golden Age idea, which is bonkers. I mean, we get cult faiths nowadays that do things or believe they can do things. You know, the, the great cult faith of a few years ago with the Halley's Oh, comet, but before you go on, sort of stuff. this is after Charles Manson, don't forget. So oh, this was, yeah, so this is already something that's, it's you know, in the, in the public eye, yeah. Right, okay. So that's probably where it came from then. But yeah. I like it. I think it's a great idea that they're going to 
reverse what are they what are they going to do they're going to reverse the entire world back in time mm-hmm. and stay where they are and hopefully walk out and if, you know <laughs> yeah, the yeah. idea is ridiculous yeah <laughs> uh, you know you have to have a complete grasp of time travel and you know <coughs> and they were going to so, roll it back. Seven, that's what they said, wasn't it? Yeah. In the seventies, they've sussed it out, have they? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Believable, really. Time chicken was more, more um, believable in see your death, but... rather than smashing mugs. Yeah, but no, the idea is okay. It's one of those ones where you have to say, okay, so don't quite understand how they're going to do it. But the idea itself of going back in time and chasing, changing changing the course of the entire planet yeah. along the new lines that you've decided it should have is actually a pretty potent idea. And it was, it, you know, the ideas that they had, the ideals that they were following, the belief systems, they, you know, they utterly believed it would be for the good of mankind. And that's where that kind of crazy cold <clears throat> madness thing comes in. When well, That becomes dangerous when you have a good idea or, or uh, an idealistic idea and then you want to make it happen but you have to make it happen with sacrifice but this is the genius of Malcolm Hogg's story because he can marry that quite an esoteric political science fiction idea with giant dinosaurs running around <laughs> London <laughs> it's perfect balance of the two yeah. elements and they, apart from the fact that the dinosaurs are so crap, yeah. they work really well together. Because in some stories with lesser writers, when you get to the political bits, you're like, right, writer's got his political head on now. And when you get to the pulpy bits, you're like, right, he's had to put this in in order to sell the script or whatever. And you see this in movies all the time. And you see it in things like mentioning Planet of the Daleks that I mentioned just now, where Terry Nation writes a pulpy runaround and stops once an episode so that John Pertwee can do a speech about courage and braveness or something, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. Invasion of the Dinosaurs, none of that stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. It all flows together beautifully. Mm. And perhaps the only thing in Invasion of the Dinosaurs that doesn't really work, although I still think it makes for a great episode, is the bit where the doctors on the run in the deserted London. I think it's episode five. And the unit tu- troops, or the, the soldiers, rather, have to go and chase him around a deserted London. And obviously, they're just in a couple of factories in Hyde Park or somewhere. <laughs> but it still makes for a great episode. But yeah. that's the only bit where the story stops, hmm. where it doesn't flow. That's the only bit that feels like it was thrown in to waste a bit of time. But, the, I mean, the dinosaurs are superfluous, really, aren't they? They're... It's called Invasion of the Dinosaurs, like you say, to bring everybody to watch it. But that's the clever trick, that it's not about them at all. Mm. They are a test. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're testing, they're bringing forward and back in time. Oh, yeah, we'll go back that far, we'll grab a, a dinosaur, see if it works. And, of course, by doing that, it evacuates London. And it, Either they thought about it before or after, but this is a double thing. They can test the equipment and evacuate London at the same time. It's it's really really clever idea. I just think it's a brilliant idea. In fact, Jurassic World need to be thinking about. Uh, have you seen Nick Jurassic and, World yet? Nick and that script, I have. Is it not any good then? This is better. Ah, okay. Speaking Even of brilliant, the effects are better in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> they all like Basil Brush. Have you noticed the way they move? Yes, obviously. Yeah. Well, speaking of brilliant ideas, though, the cliffhanger to, I think it's the third episode, maybe the fourth, where Sarah Jane wakes up on the spaceship. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, that's one of the great cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. And where and in the because obviously when I first saw it, I wasn't old enough to fully sort of take in what was going on. But when I was reading the book, where she realizes she's still got the bruise that she had before that's she goes in the, it's so fantastic. Because for a nine-year-old or whatever I was when I was reading that book, then you're working it out ahead of the author actually giving you the information. I'm really surprised that idea you're has not with been it. stolen and used in a film. Has that not been used in a film? It probably will have been somewhere. Such a simple and brilliant idea where you wake up on a spaceship <clears> going <throat> away and you've been kidnapped pretty much. And the only way that you realise it's not real is because you've had a, something wrong with you the three days before. Well, I mentioned this before, Extreme Measures with Hugh Grant. <clears throat> I think it was directed by Michael Caton Jones, can't remember. Has a moment in there that's a bit like that. And again, it's a deception. Mm. And I think he works out that it's a deception before. So there's something similar in there, but mm. I don't think you could do it. I don't think with many films you could do it on a spaceship because. Part of the thing with Doctor Who is the time travel aspect. Yeah. And even though they don't use it, that's still part of your mentality when you're watching it. Mm. So I think if you were to throw it in randomly into something else, it would just feel out of place, maybe. Wasn't there a 1960s play for today uh, sci-fi episode? Oh, I can't think of it. It'll come back to me. But a similar kind of thing where the astronauts believe they were in space and they were not. Oh, and then, of course, you've got things like Capricorn 1. Yeah, so mm. that, was, that was the film version, wasn't it? Yeah, Except they, of course, the astronauts don't believe they're in space. They just wish the hell they were when people start shooting at them. <laughs> Simon, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Benton's finest hour. Oh, you don't think his nakedness at the end of Time Monster is his finest hour? <laughs> no, I just love it. I just think there's a lovely, a lovely little moment where he, he gets the Doctor to do his Vulcan. Vulcan nerve, oh, yeah, nerve yeah, pinch yeah. thing. Yeah. As Venusian Aikido, whatever. Knock me out, Doc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love all that. I love all and that. actually, Mike Yates gets really interesting storylines from He does, that. yeah. Yeah, Duplicitous character. Well, it's really interesting that actually he gets an arc that runs across three stories yes. that lasts a whole year because mentioned, don't we? that's pretty much unheard of back at this time. But in The Green Death, he gets brainwashed. And because of the brainwashing in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, he's more, subse- more susceptible to falling in with the wrong crowd. And then in Planet of the Spiders, he gets his, um, what's the word, revitalised? No, that's not the word I'm looking for. Redemption. Redemption, mm, yeah. that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, so that's another thing that they throw in that... Mm. Surprisingly, the Brigadier doesn't get much to do at all, does he? Not really. Just shouts a few orders. Yeah, yeah. No. Look shocked at dinosaurs. Completely out of character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does that thing. Uh, I, I love him to death, but he wasn't an army man, was he? I don't think. Nick Courtney. No. Oh, well, he throws um, the pistol. He as throws he's... the pistol as he fires. He moves it forward like you yeah. would in the plane. Yeah, but Harrison Ford does that he in pew, Star pew. Wars. Yeah, yeah. Does he? Yeah, if you watch him, yeah. Yeah, when he when he fires at the troopers, it's he literally... <laughs> He kind of flicks the lasers at them. Moves it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's going to move the bullet a bit closer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like they've seen in other movies where there's a kick, but they don't realise that the reason why there's a kick is because it's the bullet coming out. So yeah. they just see the movement and try and replicate the movement and do it the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, no, it was great. I watched it again earlier this week, and um, yeah, it's just really, really solid. One thing about it is almost every character who's in it turns out to be a double agent. Yeah, <laughs> it's just spoilers. <laughs> oh, yeah. People who listen oh, yeah. to this podcast oh, yes. have seen it. No. Smith, uh, just let's go into this records room here, and uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. After when the third way is like, oh my god, so you're a double agent. Then sort of ten minutes later, oh my god, so you're a double agent. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he's in on it. Ten oh, minutes, on. he's in on it. Yeah, ten you're minutes after that, it. oh my god, so you're a double agent. <laughs> so there's a and at the end of the story, oh my god, so you're not a double agent. Yeah, I was going to say, as a member, they're all just pointing and laughing at one person in the room. So you're not a double agent. No, there's this. Yeah, you should have Benton right at the end going. For God's sake, am I the only one who didn't know what was going on here? <laughs> yeah, no, there's a scene at the end in the outtakes where all the characters are standing in the room looking at each other saying, so who the c- are you working for? I don't know. <laughs> who the c- are you working for? I thought I was working for you. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. <clears throat> Great story, though. And yeah, that first episode is sublime. And real blood. Well, not real blood. But do you know what I mean? Very rare in Doctor Who you actually get to see. If it had been the modern series, that bit where Sarah Jane says, do you know what, I'm going to open up the airlock and do it, you know, and there's like, moment. If it was the modern series, she would have pretended to get sucked out and then come back and get sucked. Are you joking? I'm not entirely sure that would have happened. (laughs) (laughs) But okay. I'm sure Sarah Jizz will. I'm sure, didn't we have a, uh, there must have been an airlock scene. We've had an airlock scene a couple of them, No, never mind. What, in 42. the new series, 42 has got an airlock. No, that was a real airlock. Yeah. Mm. No, that was mm. a false one somewhere. Anyway, don't know. I can't remember. Comments? Yes. Dylan Rees. Yes, the effects are pants, but everything else about this story is brilliant. All the regulars are on fine form and there are plenty of twists and turns, even if every member of the cast who isn't a regular turns out to be a baddie. Hey. Mm. Paul Mason. What is there to say but clack? <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Bryant, there are certain episodes which are just ridiculous in the amount of running away from bad special effects, suggesting that this is one of several stories which would have benefited from fewer than six episodes, but it does have one of the best ever cliffhangers, as well as all the great stuff with Mike Yates. Weird Bean, intrigue, adventure, time jiggery-pogery, the effects haven't aged well and may have been lacking originally, but it's a damn ambitious tale. Richard Hogarth, fun, fun, fun. Hmm. Tristan Alfaro, let's just ignore the dinosaurs, which were never going to be up to much cop in 1974. The story is a great one. Some wonderful acting, and episode one's Deserted London is very impressive. Really interesting to see the production team trying something very unique in making a series regular into something of a misguided baddie. Gary Akers, classic Doctor Who's most notable example of fans missing the forest for the trees. Great story. And yes, the effects are pants, but a lot of classic Doctor Who requires us to use our imaginations to overcome the shortcomings. This just requires it a little bit more. Mark from the podcast that has no name. An ecological message (laughs) that is not rammed down your throat like in The Green Death. There are only a couple of poor dinosaur effects, but who cares? It's Malcolm Hulk's most nuanced script, and episode one should have been called Invasion of the Dinosaurs and not Invasion to get the kids hooked early on. 
And Tim Trewarther, unfairly maligned and written off. A good script, ideas, the first episode is really atmospheric. Just don't mention the dinosaurs. Mm. Tell you what, it's across the board, isn't it? Everybody's saying pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I was going to say. story, crap dinosaurs. The um, Burns, emu, emu glove puppet, though, that... That's pterodactyl where yeah. it was supposed oh, to be it was alright when it was attacking me in the van it was from that point on it yeah. didn't happen yeah a lot of the comments said this story is not reckoned to be very good because of the dinosaurs but actually it's come second in our poll yeah. and like I say Lee everybody's saying the same thing how great it is yeah. I think that since that VHS came out in it was quite late that was the last one more or less yeah about 2000 I think this Story has been entirely re whatever the word evaluated, but that's it. I mean, the the you know, it wasn't shown, the pictures weren't shown in Doctor Who magazine. You got the old clip here, very rare, so it became quite an enigma, really. And the BBC were plainly embarrassed by it because they left it at the end of the range to release. And then all of a sudden, he says, Well, no, the book was quite good. Oh, yeah, this is right, the story's great. Um, and I gotta say, I, I, I didn't vote this top, did I? No, we all voted it second. We all voted the. Actually, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I should I think have voted the top. To be honest, I think they're hand in hand. But I think the reason the Time Warrior wins out is because it's so much more fun. Yeah, it's pretty solid. Because Invasion of the Dinosaurs is a great story, but it doesn't, it doesn't get your dander up in the same nice one, in the same <laughs> way as the Time Warrior does. Do you know what I mean? What's a dander? <laughs> no, go on. Invasion of the Dinosaurs has got a great story, slightly too long, poor special effects, and while I wouldn't say it's too serious for its own good, it's a fairly serious story with hokey bits, pulpy bits, whereas the Time Warrior just plays it for fun, yeah. but at the same time still has a solid story at its core. Oh yeah. Introduction of the Sontarans, and they're a fully formed race, straight away. And it's not just that, but the plot itself, about um, an alien that crash lands on Earth, and we would say from this perspective, crash lands in history, but from the perspective of where the Sontaran lands, it just lands on Earth, Mm. and realises that Earth doesn't have the facilities at that time to fix his spaceship, so uses a time scoop, their time scoop, two stories in a row, to take the things it needs from the future, mm. which fortunately just happens to be our presence, our present. Hence, the Doctor goes back and mm. saves the day. It's still a, it's an interesting concept. Mm. I mean, Spaceman and King Arthur, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's kind of twist on it. I mean, that's exactly <clears> what it is, really. But the but the thing about writing science fiction is sorry, just to cut you yeah, off. That's okay. Is when you come up with a story. If you're going to come up with a story, a plot for a science fiction story, you have to, it's almost incumbent upon you to come up with something brand new. You almost have to. Because if you don't, it's not like a, if you write a romance where it's all very well to have the couple getting together at the start, then fall out, then spend 90 minutes arguing and then get together at the end again. That's fine. That's how romantic comedies work. Science fiction doesn't work if you don't come up with something brand new. Which is why most Doctor Who isn't really science fiction. It's just monsters invading. That's not really science fiction. It's just the invaders could be anyone or anything. It's just an 
an adventure story, but to do a science fiction story. And The Time Warrior is a science fiction story because it has that plot where the alien needs to take things from the future in order to repair its spaceship. Mm. In order to come up with things like that, 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 okay, maybe aren't entirely brand new, but feel brand new and feel fresh, that's quite a job of work. You don't just sit down and these ideas pop into your head. You have to spend some time. I mean, in a way, that would suit quite nicely in, not a Tharg future shock, but that kind of, uh, the, the pulp, that pulp sci-fi ideas, <clears throat> the short stories. Astounding stories and stuff. Exactly. You know, yeah. So you get that really good core idea that no one's really thought about too hard. Okay, it's, it's you know, like Spaceman and... King Arthur. King Arthur's Court. But um, it, it does a twist on that. But it's the thing about the future. You don't get that in, in, in that book that you mentioned about poaching people from the future to fix your, your, your thing. I mean, obviously the biggest loophole there is why didn't he go forward in time? Oh, it was the furthest boundary that he could reach with the power he had. Right. But couldn't he send himself forward in time instead? <clears throat> well, no. Only as a ghost... All this is explained in there. It's all right, I can't remember. It's been a while since I watched it. It's but, all so. explained in the usual baffle gab ways. <laughs> yes. Um, what happens that's really interesting, not that's really interesting, what happens that makes it work is, if you're doing something like this and you're saying, right, what I'm doing is instead of an alien invasion, I'm going to come up with a science fiction concept, then you can get stuck at the concept stage. Or, alternately, if you're somebody like Robert Holmes who we think of now as a genius, but actually at the time was a jobbing writer. But what he did as a jobbing writer is he fleshed the bones out in a way that nobody else did. And what he does with the Time Warrior, he obviously makes a decision. All of his stories are funny. All of his stories have interesting characters and all of his stories have a a sort of a quirky tone. Hmm. Terror of the Autons and Carnival of Monsters and stories like that. They will have a slightly quirky tone. And even if you look at the talons of Wang Chiang, that's not a natural, organic, historical. That's a pastiche of stories from the time. Hmm. He's not pastiching stories that look back to that time. He's pastiching stories actually from that time. has a kind of a quirky, central tone and premise. What he does with the Time Warrior is he says, OK, I am going to ostentatiously... Take this interesting science fiction idea. Instead of making a dry science fiction story, I am going to turn it into an absolute romp. <laughs> and he goes for it absolutely full pelt. And I don't know. This is why I voted it top. I think the Time Warrior has got some of the best, funniest, most memorable, and most characterful dialogue that there has ever been in Doctor Who. I'm going to fill in. You can, ju- you know, but you know what you had that you got the same kind of um, not hammy acting. What was it? The kind of over the top acting. Arch, arch, arch. Yeah. We had that in the Awakening, didn't we? But when it the didn't guy, work. Every, every time he walked through the door, he'd do a big yeah, sweepy yeah. gesture with his arms. If he'd have had Robert Holmes' dialogue to work with, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a lack of charm in the Awakening, which there is. Yeah, this has got. Yeah, this has got, got charm and character in. Spades, mm. and you can believe the thing is, it's it is arch, but and this is why I like things like Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick <laughs> is so arch, you almost can't see it because it's flying off the corner of the screen. <laughs> but arch with characters that you can believe that 
is a particular kind of trick that is incredibly difficult to pull off. It's what the Coen brothers do. Mm. You know, everything about the Coen brothers movies feels unnatural. But because the universe is so consistent, you just get drawn into it and you believe in the characters and you feel for the characters and you want the characters to have, you know, good resolutions, happy endings, It's the best thing about the Rebus operation, isn't it, is those... Those same characters, almost Shakespearean. Mm. Yeah, in many ways. Mm. Like Shakespeare crossed with, I don't know, I was going to say Buster Keaton, that's not really what I mean, you know what I mean. Mm. Mm. Like Shakespeare crossed with Oscar Wilde. Right, so he the live birds, huh? <laughs> But that's what it is, it's like... Mm. And they're so... The Time Warrior, if I was the kind of person who remembered dialogue, and I never do, I would... You know, the three of us could probably go down the pub now and just recite the entire script to one another, couldn't we? Probably could. If we were those kind of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you got those lovely, like you said, those lovely funny little characters, like the professor, the mm. man professor, all the way through, who helps out, you know. And, um, and it's, oh, who was that actor? Because he was just brilliant. And yeah. Did, I loved him. I thought it was great. He was a really good old uh, Doctor Who in the... But it's ridiculous as his performance is. You believe in him and you believe in his storyline. and you... just, Yeah, they got that silly thing of where he left his glasses behind. But yeah, yeah. actually there is a logic to the fact that, you know, and that's the, the why sometime we just leave him to it because he's just thinking, your eyes don't work properly, I'm just going to ignore you. Yeah. And you're right about the Sontarans being a, a fully fleshed out. Um, alien race already. Well, it? the bit where he plants the flag right at the start. Yeah. Just hilarious. It's, but at the That's same brilliant. time, it sets it up brilliantly. Yeah. Because it sets that character up brilliantly as well. He just doesn't care. If he gets there, oh, there, there, there's, you know, I've arrived on this planet where there's quite obviously life because there's trees all around. So presumably there's more intelligent life than just trees, but I don't care. I'm planting my flag anyway. Don't we get that? Arrogance. In a... In a um... Isn't it Predator? Isn't it like a major Hollywood film? Oh, I think film? so, yeah, yeah, yeah. As well. And I was thinking, hey, like, I've seen this somewhere before. <laughs> oh, well, that was 13 years later. I mean, design-wise as well, the Sontarans are fully fleshed out and, and probably Lynx probably looks better than any other Sontaran all the way up to the modern mm. series. And yeah. even the modern series, I'm not convinced is... But the costume nearly killed the actor who was in it, who did, uh, in fact, die a couple of years later. The guy who played Cho G. No connection, I take it. No, I think yeah. Didn't he have a stroke or heart attack or something while he was in yeah. it and just carried on or something? I I might be completely wrong there, but uh, I'm sure he was like you say he was suffering quite a lot in that, yeah. in that outfit. Yeah, and when they did the Sontaran experiment, they redesigned the costume so it'd be yeah. less cumbersome. Oh, right, okay. Which is why the one in the Sontaran experiment doesn't look nearly as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then after that, it kind of all downhill for the Sontarans till the new series. And I think the first nice Sarah Jane right. episode of Cross. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Kind of in the door, lands on her feet, really, doesn't she? Great way Perfect. to introduce the character. Brilliant way. You know, the whole story of she's come there in the pretense of being around. Yeah. And the doctor realises, and so there's this slight to and fro. And because there's a slight to and fro, there's a kind of misunderstanding between the characters which sets up the conflict for the first couple of episodes mm. and causes the chain of events that in the end turns her into a companion because if she hadn't have landed up back in medieval Britain, she, she wouldn't be there at the end of the story for him to take off to, you know, deserted London and invasion of dinosaurs. Very cleverly done. 
you know, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. Writers have to work really hard, you know, to make sure that the chain of events that causes all these things to happen works, not just in plot terms, but in character terms. And it does. That first episode of The Time Warrior is fantastically well written. And I like like (coughs) when a companion is introduced with a job and you get that. It, it, you know, it carries on for for quite a while, actually. That that journalism thing. In fact, for the pretty next, much, well, for the two first two years. For the first not two so years, much in the third no, one. no, not so much. Then it gets picked up at Canine and Company, and carries on from there again. But you had that with Donna Noble as well, being the best temp in Chiswick. That kind of. But what doesn't happen again, here? Yeah, but what doesn't happen here is the character becomes the job. No, it's no. like Tegan, air hostess. Mm. That's not a job that involves. You know, with apologies to any air hostesses who may be listening, it's not a job that involves a lot of thinking. Well, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) That uniform must have stunk by the end of a. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Seriously. You give a character a job of an air hostess, and how are you going to use that on the screen? You can't. You can't. But you give a character a job of being a journalist. And I don't like that. I don't mm-hmm. like... No, I don't like saying, here's a character, she's a journalist. Well, we can use that to get her involved in the stories. I think that's a contrivance. But if you take that and you actually make that part of the character, you make that a character who's Trait. interested in people... Mm-hmm. Interested in why things happen That's and goes and looking for things. Yeah, Planet of the Spiders, yeah. Robot, all those things that it, that it works in her favour being in that character because she can go off to the <clears> tree, <throat> go, I'm, I'm doing an article. Yeah, but on. that's the contrivance. What I mean really? is. Really? I quite. Well, okay. No, the, it's the contrivance. If the character hadn't been so well realised, it would have just been a contrivance. Yes. A yeah, bit okay. like Tegan being an air hostess and constantly wanting to that's, get back to Heathrow. Yeah. yeah, but actually. Because Elizabeth Sladen plays it so well, yeah. and because they write it so well back at the start, I actually feel it's it's a case of is the character a journalist because that's how we start the stories, or is the character a journalist because we've written this character that would have become a journalist? Mm-hmm. And with I mean, Sarah Jane, it feels like she would have become a journalist because that's who her character is. They could have just yes. repeated things, contrived it in, in a way that, oh, well, your companion's gone, here's your new one. You know, have got your new mm. one. But it actually works in it and it dovetails with the story. And There you... has to be a consistency where mm. she's constantly investigating things, but not in a, oh, here's my pad of paper, I need to make notes. Like in Death of the Daleks, where she goes off and looks at the city. Yeah. You know, when she sees the city, she doesn't run away. She doesn't just say, oh, that's pretty, and take pictures of it. She goes up and she starts looking. She starts trying to work out how yeah. it works, all yeah. this kind of stuff. She's got an inherently curious curious and intelligent brain, mm. which goes with journalism, really. That's what you need. Mm. There's also a lovely scene where um, the Doctor literally meets her for the first time, doesn't he? And he, you can see him picking her, which is continued right through David Tennant all the way through, isn't it? Mm. The Doctor picking the appropriate companion. I think that's probably the first time it happens, isn't it? Where the doctor Do you think literally... so? I think so. In the time warrior. Yeah, he sits there. He sits there like he does, all nonchalant, with his feet up on the desk. I suppose in a way he does, up, doesn't and he? Yeah. And he and he looks at her, and from that point on in the story, he backs up her story. He's got respect for her. As yeah, well. he, covers, he covers. He yeah. covers for her. 
Mm. So from that point on, he actually thinks, oh, I like you. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same as when uh, David Tennant meets Martha in, at the start of uh, yeah. Smith and Jones. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But he makes it blindingly obvious. I think, oh, you're good. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like a little it's bit like, too... That's no subtlety there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have you spotted something that we, we've missed? <laughs> it's the first, isn't it? <laughs> do you want to do anything more on the time or should we do the comments I think we gave you the comments it is just fantastic though. it is a lot it's of location stuff as well which is always nice mm. yeah and very well realised medieval set inside yeah Jerry Bullock yeah 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 of course Boba Fett Boba did you say Boba and also Boba like Boba and Boba also um, what's she called from EastEnders June Brown. I was going to say June yeah. Brown. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say earlier how well written that is that uh, Robert Holmes takes a female character, doesn't write a strong woman, just just completely takes into account that behind every man is a woman who's wearing his trousers. Yeah, exactly. Every every man in power. Yeah, but that that's also the Macbethian type of thing. Yes, yes. That's not a word, is it, Macbethian? But it is now. But it is and it isn't. It's just, but. It, it, in Macbeth, again, it's a sort of a contrivance because she's pushing him to do things that are going to be the cause of the tragedy. So that's like a plot thing. Mm. But in Time Warrior, it's not a plot thing. It's just a character thing. Yeah, it is. And it really allow, it allows that, the male character then to listen yeah. <clears throat> to Sarah Jane and actually take her on board what, you know, her ideas. And it's a real talent. For a writer who's sitting alone in a room with a typewriter to be able to see these characters in his head to such an extent that he can write this stuff. Because mm-hmm. most people, when you sit down with a blank sheet of paper, you just write a plot. You know? Fleshing it out with characters who feel like real people even before the actors get to say the lines is considerable talent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dylan Reese says, for me, this is Holmes' first genuine classic and foreshadows all he is about to do for the series. The dialogue sparkles, the supporting cast are brilliant and Lynx is the best the Sontarans have ever been. I may name my first child Iron Gron. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher Bryant says, this shows what a pity it was that the long-shanked rascal with the mighty nose only went back into Earth's history this one time. The production team are having a whale of a time and the actors, particularly David Dacre, are thoroughly entertaining. It's also one of the best companion introductions, particularly mm. by having Sarah identify the Doctor as the villain for a considerable chunk of the story. <laughs> Weird bean. You'll like this, Simon. Dot Cotton and Boba Fett. Need I say more? Well, alright. A fantastic intro for Sarah Jane. Also a rare quasi-historical for the third Doctor. Richard Hogarth says, A great romp which introduces one of the greatest companions the show has ever had and introduces the Sontarans in a great story. I love the Time Warrior. You can tell I'm getting a bit tired. Hey, yeah, I'm stumbling all over the place. Another actor, Iron Gron, of course, is Kevin's dad from Time Bandits. In is real it? life? No. But in the film, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's the same actor. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, he plays him. Yeah, well, the same about Boba Fett. Yes, and yes it is. It like is. David You're Dacre. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, watched it <clears> the other day with Finn the first time. Loved it. Tristan Alfaro. It's not too long. Fantastic new monster in the Santaran. Amazing introduction for Liz Slade and Sarah. Great scenery and location shooting. Hal the Archer could have been a Jamie for the seventies, or is it the eighties? 
Jim Hall says, I can't really explain why, but there's something I find profoundly depressing about Pertwee pretending to be a robot knight, waving yeah. his sword arm <laughs> up and down mechanically. Yeah, and you can see his chin coming out from underneath the helmet. As a result, this is one of the few Pertwees I never want to see again. In comparison, the mutants and the time monster are positively life-affirming. <laughs> Gary Agers says, Unfortunate that Pertwee's only pseudo-history outing is not more imaginative story and set-wise, but at least it introduces Sarah and the Sontarans. I'm guessing Jim and Gary didn't vote Time Warrior Tottenham. <laughs> they probably didn't. But a lot of those uh, are reaffirming why, I believe. So that's why we voted it top. There's so many great things to think about and talk about with it. And finally, Mark from some podcast or other says, A fun medieval romp. It's like the King's Demons, but good. Sarah Jane, instantly likeable, and Joe isn't missed at all. Surely they could have put the scientists up in a posh hotel, as opposed to a backpacker hostel. <laughs> yeah, I forgot, I've forgotten about the robot. Uh, Seriously, it's like a Scooby-Doo night in It was, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's made up for by some of the other bit. The bit where he's doing the uh, stink bombs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to watch it again. Finn hasn't seen that yet. Well, in that case, Finn must see it. Oh, Time Warrior is one of my... It's one of my favourite Doctor Who stories, it has to be said. Um, <clears throat> Right, I've got two films to review and... Well, I don't have to review two films, but I'm going to, whether you two want me to or not. Oh, could I, could I just make a point going back? Because we were yeah, talking on. very briefly about Target novelizations, about all of these. We made a point of saying about all of those, and I went back... Well, the Monster of Peladon's not a very good one, because that came out much later. Oh, was it? Okay. Mm. Um, just as an experiment, I went back to time. I went to the novel of Time Flight, because mm. I thought, right, okay... Bad story. Let's have a look at the novel and see if it pads it out and makes something of it which wasn't there before. And we've discussed this, you know. And Did I, you read the whole thing? No. I only okay. got so far. And when I realised that the novel was just as shallow as the story itself. Just the script on page. I literally threw it down in disgust because of <laughs> the fact that they mentioned at the start that Adric has just died. And in the book, they even kind of get over him just like that. You know, they sort of say, oh, I'm, I'm a bit sad about Adric. You're a bit sad? Yeah, I'm a bit sad. Yeah, so we go on the Concord. <laughs> right, where are we now then? And they just carry on, and they just carry on like nothing's happened. Yeah. This is in the freaking book. Seriously. Anyway. And, right. and it's a terrible cover as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, dreadful. Double your money. Right, cheer us up after that. Dear Blue Knobbers, I have just listened to your last podcast. It was shite. Actually, it was quite good, ha-ha. I didn't realise you had changed the name of the podcast. I don't think the new title trips off the tongue as well, but hey-ho. I can't remember. This was the horror films one. Did I call us... Did I say something else? Did you call ourselves the Blue Knobbers? I don't remember. No, we didn't call ourselves the Blue Knobbers. Don't be silly. I can't remember what I said. It was the one where I said for the next 666 minutes, Uh, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. At the start, JR tried to do a scary voice and Lee just laughed, ha ha. Then he was talking about horrible films and saying that they need to have potency which hits you in the face and thought that this was my worst dream, but actually I get in the hit for the face with it quite often. <clears throat> the films that you talked about were Carrying On Scream Carrying On Streaming, which was a film 
with Kenneth G and Peter Butterbiscuit and Alan Hedale all about showing films online. It also starred Jan Putrid in a role where he played cameo and wore a cod on his knob. It was very funny and I liked it. I get called odd bod sometimes, usually by policemen. Simon liked fennel field mouse's cleavage and I must say that I agree. It was the best part of the film for me and my hand got tired. The next film was Rosemary Clooney's Baby, which I haven't seen, but it sounds rubbish. <laughs> After that, it was The Wicket Man, which starred Peter Davidson and Jeffrey from Rainbow, who boycotted the film. It was all about a cricket match, and the man's disabled brother did it. It wasn't that good, though. Apparently, someone refused to shag Brit Eggman, which makes no sense to me, as she was very nice and I would have. JR said, come uppance, which made me laugh. Ha ha. Next, Simon chose... Kinky Dong, all about a big monkey who took a shine to Ray Reardon and took him up the tower, which must have hurt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> then you talked about the O-Men with Silly Vesta McCoy and David Rappapapapaport and also starred Peter Pecker, Time Warner and Padraig Thrufton. It was very scary and I had to buy some special pants afterwards. Lee forgot the whole plot of the film, which made talking about it very hard. You started talking about Draclia, and JR kept saying sexy and leaded a funny voice, which I found very scary and had to go and find those pants again. <laughs> <clears throat> then it was Mexican Weary Waffle in Leicester, which was a film about a big doggy who goes dogging and finds Richard III, which is Cockney rhyming slang for shit. <laughs> After that, Simon's next choice was germaline, all about a small fluffy thing that gets a rash when it gets wet and needs to put cream on. It had Muppets in it and they scare me a lot. Pants on standby. Finally, you talked about Angle's Arse, which was apparently dictated by Alan Partridge. I haven't seen it, but I hope it had Bufflety in it as she likes Angle and has a very nice arse. I was very disappointed that you didn't talk about Piranha 3DD, which is clearly better than all of the films you did talk about. I would also have included Spice World, which is the most terrifying film ever, <laughs> and also Hannah Montana the movie, which I refuse to watch out of Victoria principle. Next week, apparently, Lee and Simon won't be there, but you will have Stephen Shoporovsky on from the Free Nelson Mandela podcast. I like listening to this podcast, too, as he has a man called Warren on who makes cakes and pies and is very funny and has no hairs. I will write to their podcast one day. I think it is quite good. Your friend, Sharak Jeers. <clears throat> All right. Okay, so I watched two films this week, both of which are on pre-order at the moment. The first one comes out quite soon. The second one, I've no idea when. The first one's called Eat. Simon's going to love this. It's an indie horror movie. Mm. Hang on. Can we have a guess at what this might be about? Go on, then. You guess. Okay. Is it one of those films that puts you in a predicament where you have to decide whether to do something terrible in order to get out of the predicament? So, like, saw you have to saw your arm off. So, eat, you have to eat part of your own body in order to save yourself. Or eat somebody else's body. That's what I'm trying oh, to I thought it was a Cockney remake of Heat. <laughs> Eat. <laughs> it is neither of those things. It's it's funny. It's like a psychological thing, but then obviously it gets into some particularly graphic stuff. It's about a woman. She's thirty. She's an actress, but she's a failed actress. She's not had a job for three years. 
she's going to auditions and she's only getting offered parts in porn movies and she refuses to do that so she doesn't get any parts at all. She's about to get evicted from the flat she's living in. She's no relationship, all this kind of stuff. And one day the anxiety's getting to her and actually the scene where this happens is done quite subtly. So that if you don't know what the premise of the movie is and you would because obviously if you're watching it you know what it's going to be about she gets a piece of loose skin on her fingernail and she just bites it off but then she eats it and then throughout the rest of the film whenever she has a particularly anxious moment she starts eating bits of herself until by the end of the film she's like literally gnawing toes off and stuff so by the end of the film it gets it gets quite graphic. Some of the special effects aren't brilliant, but some of the special effects are pretty good. But uh, those are really only a minor part of the film. And a lot of the film is actually her psychological condition. And also an interesting story about a relationship that she may or not get into, which has an interesting plot and also interesting parts for some of the other characters. It's all a bit arch. Some of the acting in it is not... Well, some of the acting in it is not natural, shall we say. And some of the tone of the film is kind of drifts here and there. But on the whole, it's actually a pretty good film. And it reminded me a bit of Boogie Nights, in that Boogie Nights is kind of... Simon's looking... It scans at me here. Boogie Nights is a film about Hollywood, but what it does is it uses the porn industry as a metaphor for Hollywood as a whole. This is basically the whole eating herself thing and all this kind of stuff is also a metaphor for Hollywood. It's using a horror trope or a psychological horror trope as a metaphor for the film industry. And there's a lot of... It's well written and thought out and well put together and well directed. It's I, in my review of it, which is, uh, isn't out as this as we're recording, but probably will be by the time I said it's. I said it's probably a minor masterpiece, because I think although the central subject is going to be very off-putting for a lot of people and it is a difficult film to watch, actually a lot of the film pretty much hits all those nails that it's aiming for. Is it a director we've heard of, or is it new? No, it's first film by somebody whose name I can't remember. Mm. But it's written and directed by the same person, and also edited and scored. A reasonably good budget? Very small budget, but it's one of those films where the budget's not an issue. You can't mm. tell that it's a small budget. Mm. It all looks good. It's a good film, and if you can, if you can sit through a film where quite graphically a woman is eating herself yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I can no sure. <laughs> before I put it in the machine I thought oh my god I'm going to really struggle with this but actually the film's so good that yeah. I didn't struggle with it at all okay. and it's one of those films where there are some films where the ending is kind of tacked on because you need to find some way to end the film it's almost like they come up with a premise and then they've got to find some way to get to the end this film, on the other hand, the ending, in spite of the fact that there are sort of things thrown in where you think, mm. oh, it could go another way. But 
it doesn't go in any of the other directions. It ends where it absolutely has to, right from the very first moment of the film. Mm. It's good. Eat. Recommended. The other film I have to review is called Bloody Sin. Or the cover of the DVD says Bloody Sin Abominations of the Third Reich. And that's what you'll find it under on Amazon. But actually the film is just called Bloody Sin. It's an Italian film. And it is, I don't know if it's a pastiche or an homage. I honestly couldn't tell if it's sending up the originals or trying to be a loving homage to them. But it's a homage to Italian popular cinema of the sort of 60s and 70s, which includes the spaghetti westerns type mm. stuff, as well as horror films by people like Lucio mm. Fulci, mm. who did Zombie Flesh Eaters. It... All right, it starts in the offices of a New York porn magazine, which is obviously filmed in Italy, with a cast of people who are supposed to be Americans, who are all Italians, who are all speaking English, and the entire dialogue throughout the entire film is dubbed in the same way as the dubbing in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and A Fistful of Dollars, really badly dubbed. Some of the actors are so bad, you will need the subtitles, even though they speak in English and they've been dubbed on in English. You're selling it to me so far. It's, I tell you what, <laughs> it is either one of the worst films you'll ever see or one of the best films you'll ever see. I honestly couldn't tell. I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be funny. It's, yeah. It's, it can't be as bad as Phantom of the Opera. That was bloody dire. Oh, no, 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 it's, oh, it's watchable, really watchable. Oh, no, it's a, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I don't know if I enjoyed it for the right reasons or not. <laughs> I think I did. I think the director obviously knows what he's doing. He's yeah. deliberately, no, he's quite deliberately homaging or pastiching these films, but it works as a pastiche, not so much an homage. Mm, mm. And if he's homaging rather than pastiching, then he's really cocked it up. But if he's pastiching rather than homaging, he's probably done a good job. But it's not... Him. Well, <laughs> it's not quite as funny as it should be if it's a pastiche, but it's nowhere near straight enough to be an homage, so it's somewhere so in, in this between. weird <laughs> ground in between. But it's got this ridiculously convoluted plot, or two plots that run in parallel ridiculously convoluted ignore the cover the picture on the cover has almost got nothing to do with the film ignore the subtitle abominations of the third reich it's really got nothing to do with that either that's a kind of a subplot that's in about two minutes of the film that then turns up again at the end i tell you the abomination is on the back cover where they've squashed up the font seriously no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you and your graphic design well when people squash fonts it's got. It makes it look really cheap. Two of the lead then, parts are from people who've never acted. Well, one from somebody who's never acted before, and one from somebody who's only ever acted in porn movies before. I need to be in a film. I need to be in a film like this. You know, talking of boogie nights, you know, in boogie nights where they're sending up porn actors and the performances are deliberately arch. Yeah, that's right. Well, this is like that, but for real. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, but, look at look at the logo of the film company, though. Or who've put the DVD out? Look, what does that remind you of? That logo, Babylon Five. Bab it does it, look like Babylon Five. 
It's sector five. Oh, is it? Oh. Yeah, I think you're concentrating too much on the wrong things there, Simon. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you've already said the cover's got nothing to do the with it. The thing is, I absolutely love the cover. I mean, the cover's disturbing, but it's a good kind of horror cover. Mm. If you were to have that on the front of a book, it's kind of like, oh, what's it about? Could it be the devil? What, you know, what's going on? Uh, yeah. You know, it's two babies kind of sewn together, so it's a bit disturbing. But if you're into horror, that's quite a, an, an appealing cover. Oh, it'd be quite interesting. I but don't think you could call it a horror film. They don't turn up in it then. I don't know. Yeah, sort of. And at the end, there's a twist which refers back to it. Uh-huh. But it's really not about that. It's about a castle in Italy, remote castle oh, in what? Italy. A castle. Castle. Oh yeah. Where these pornographers go to shoot some a photo spread for this magazine, but they get there and. Well, okay, it's not going to spoil things too much to say that this castle was discovered to be the seventh gate of hell. So then, you know... It's quite a selling point. Lots of assorted weirdness ensues. The seventh gate of hell. Yeah. But it's it's almost like a Benny Hill version of a horror film. (laughs) Oh, and uh, there is an abundance of nudity, if that floats your boat. Not really, but hey. (laughs) It's a liar. It, no, it doesn't. I don't care about nudity in films at all, in fact. No, 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 neither do I. I was just... a, you know, something like, say, Boogie Nights, there's not as much in there as you think. I don't know if I can't remember if there is any, is there? Yeah. There's there a little is bit, a isn't bit. there? To, to ram home the point. Ram home the point. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't need it because the story's so good. But, oh, I don't know. Look at it. I know, I found it Do you know what? I'm starting to think that Starburst guys, you know, I said this before where they're like sifting through the DVDs at the beginning of the month. (laughs) Both of these films, Lee, got good reviews. He's He's going, okay, right, Jurassic World, I love that. Mad Max, I love that. What's this one called? Bloody Sin. What's it about? Oh, some porn stuff. Let's give it to J.R. like that. What's this one called? Eat. Oh, it's about porn star. Yeah, give it to J.R. (laughs) I think you're starting to get all the even more dodgy ones and the horror ones. You ask I for the films, Lee. They it's... don't choose which ones they send yet. You ask no, for them. the films choose you. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get the big ones. They go to the main film reviewers. But the smaller ones get put out to tender. Yeah, I mean, you, you did a fantastic piece on the, the Terminator in the last Starburst magazine. It was very, very, very good. Um, surely you're main, your main player now. I think I'd have words with the bosses. I want, to, I want to see you reviewing, you know, the big dumb pictures now, please. Well, I've already asked for the DVD of Jurassic World, but I doubt <laughs> I'll get it. <laughs> dinosaurs! I watched two dinosaur movies this week as well. The Dinosaur Project and Jurassic City. Okay, haven't seen Jurassic City, but Dinosaur Project I quite enjoyed. <laughs> Jurassic uh, City, Dinosaur Project's better than Jurassic City. Oh, right, okay. Jurassic City wasn't very good. Dinosaur Project's actually rather good, isn't it's it? not bad, it's not bad at all. Yeah, it was okay. Jurassic City, not so much. I was disappointed with that. But hey, cheap dinosaur movies, <laughs> I'm your man. But they weren't for review because they were a couple of years old, those films. Right. Anyway, I recommend. I would recommend both those films, but for very different reasons. And, you know, they're not for everybody. That goes without saying. Mm. Right, then next week, uh, it's going to be the second half of the missing episodes. Not that there was planning to be a second half, but we had so much stuff to get through. We only got through half of it, so we pretty much decided as we were finishing that we were going to reconvene and carry on. You haven't found them yet, though. <laughs> so next week, uh, Stephen and Tim and I will get together again and talk about 
And rather than the first one was about the rumours as a whole, I think in the second one we'll probably just go through specific bits and pieces. Mm. So the second one is like a the second one is like the footnotes from Lord of the Rings to the first one's Lord of the Rings. Silmarillion or whatever it's called. (laughs) You know what I mean? The second podcast is going to be footnotes as opposed to the story. In the first one, we covered what's happened. In the second one, we're going to cover the footnotes. And then in two weeks' time, the three of us are back together and... Canine. Possibly. (laughs) Although I'm thinking I might save that for a few weeks. Because we've got to put a podcast out on the night when Doctor Who comes back in August. God, not long. And we won't get previews for that, I wouldn't have thought. So we might have to put out a podcast or something else. So I reckon that's good to do. Canine and Company on the night Doctor Who comes back. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) That's a good one, yeah. So I'm thinking of saving that. We could do a late night, late night one, couldn't we? Can we watch it? We'll watch it and then just record it Mm. immediately afterwards. Our instant. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I'm not going to say we're doing K9 in two weeks because we don't know what's going to happen in August. No. So until next week, then I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Take those home. You'll love them. Um, Are you going to be able to watch Eat? It's a good film. I'm trying to think what dates. I'm I'm going on holiday for a week in August. Later part of August. Uh, We've got to record, you and I, without Lee, we've got to record a preview for Series 9, right? Mm, Okay. Obviously, you won't be involved in that. We did this last year. No, Mr. No Spoilers. What would be the point of having you in the room if for an hour and a half you're just going to sit there with your fingers Massive in your ears? Spoiler. So we'll do it without Massive. you. Yeah. Seriously, somebody just, just shame, keep away from the internet. Shane just but I told up. you tonight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shane yeah. just walked in and said, oh, Fraser Hines is in it. What? No, he's not. He just no. uh, he just did a set visit. Yeah, well, people like Shane, like, don't tell me. I want spoiler free. And then he continues to say some more stuff. And it's like, blah, 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 blah. Don't say anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, luckily that, that sounded like it was just an on-set visit. But It was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the roundels are back. I don't want to know. Just, he just, just happened to be in a kill. <laughs> it's fine.